0: My name is Harley Lewis.
1: I'm Lawson Keeney.
0: And I'm jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Now that we've exited the Lake Placid Anaconda trilogy that Lawson plotted out for us.
1: Hey, hey, I pitched it and you okayed it. Don't (laughs) pass all this off on me. I asked you if this was something that you wanted to do and you said, you said, and I quote Jean, that sounds like a bit of fun.
0: You did say that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it so was a bit of don't fun. Be, we had don't be fun trying to
1: retroactively frame this as something that I solely brought upon all of us.
0: No, it, 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 it's like how Nazis were like, I was only following orders. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. That's a bit No, it's much. like, we're all complicit in this. We all yeah. had a hand. Yeah. Magneto's family were killed. By Taylor's and Pig followers. Hang on.
1: In this analogy, am I Hitler?
0: No. No, no, no. No, the no, movie's no. Hitler.
1: Okay. Just as long as I'm not Hitler.
0: No, 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 no. We're the people who've been pushing. You know to what? Let's just, on, let's just yeah, <laughs> let's move on, bitch. Let's just move on. Get analogy. out of this
1: minefield no, now. Now. Be go, with go, any go.
0: <laughs> Alright, so. Instead of something. You know, very gory, sort of horror esque. We've got bits. We've got bits. Seen a comedy. Yeah. One of. Our childhood favourites, one of our current favourites, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Yeah, baby, yeah! But first, we're going to go over what we've seen within the week, but after that, you will definitely hear more bad Austin Powers impressions.
1: Not from me, though, I promise.
0: Oh, come on. bad Dr. Evil?
1: No, no, I'm, I'm going to stay away from all that. I don't think I that have bastard? the... I don't think I have the backing for it, but the, the background for it. But anyway.
0: Your Goofy was pretty okay. Yeah, you, but... You did do a good Goofy.
1: I do a decent Goofy, you know. It's kind of fun. I did find myself, you know, just for the next few weeks after, like, watching those Goofy movies, every time, like, a serious or sinister line came up in a movie, I just did find myself sort of repeating it in the Goofy <laughs> voice just because it's kind of fun.
0: What's the best one?
1: Oh, I can't repeat it on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, why don't we we move on? We'll talk about what we've been watching, and I'll start us off. I watched Event Horizon. Have you guys ever seen this?
0: No, I've watched videos about it. Mm.
1: It's a science fiction horror movie. It's directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, and it's set in the mid-21st century. Humanity has sort of reached the limits of space expansion at this point they've gotten about as far as they can go without figuring out a way to go faster than light and the event horizon is this experimental ship that travels through other dimensions to get around faster than light travel that it will sort of poke a hole in the universe and move through another dimension and come out somewhere else back in our universe But this doesn't work quite as well, and during its first test run, it just disappears. When it activates the the mechanism, it's just gone. Whoops. But it reappears adrift at the edge of the solar system seven years later. And so the designer of it, Dr. William Weir, who is played by Sam Neill and a space rescue team led by a guy named Captain Miller, he's played by Lawrence Fishburne, they set out to discover what happened, and they quickly learn that wherever that ship has been, it's brought back something pretty powerful and nasty with it. This is an atmospheric, ambitious horror movie that blends Alien with The Shining, with some pretty great results. little
0: bit of in the mouth of madness there with the Sam Neill factor. Mm.
1: I mean, that's a fantastic premise. It's totally up my alley. You know, the the whole derelict ship thing is something that I always love and just the whole where has it been these seven years, that sort of thing. And it's creepy and it never tries to spell things out specifically. The atmosphere here really works well. There's this whole bit where they're they're coming up on the ship and they're investigating it and they're finding all of this just just mysterious what has happened here. And there's a... all of the zero gravity, there's no gravity in there when they go on there. So they're going in spacesuits and there's just this mauled body that float that's floating by and like stuff like that. They get a distress signal like right when it comes back in on the edge of the atmosphere. And all it is is screaming. Hmm. And in the background, a guy chanting in Latin.
0: Well, that's not great.
1: Yeah, it- any, any, you know, screaming and the, chant- the chanting in Latin's what gets me. You know, that's that's like a stay away. That's a red flag.
0: Oh, definitely. I, I, I don't necessarily think so. I think it's the combination of two things. It's like cheese and wine. The you can have them the separately, Latin. but if you put them together, it's really something special. I, I punched that on the calculator and meets a frowny face.
1: <laughs> but there's this mounting sense of dread and paranoia that's done really well. And the design of the ship is very... Ridley Scott's Alien-esque. It's harsh and dark and looks like it's made for utility rather than comfort. It allows for some really cool lighting and some good location set pieces. The scale of this is impressive. It was $60 million budget for an R-rated horror movie in 1997. That's almost $97 million today. That's a big budget for a horror movie, let alone an R-rated one. And that ambition is really clear in the scope of the ship and the set pieces. They have, you know, scenes that are set outside the ship on a spacewalk. There's, of course, a moment where, you know, one of the portholes is blown out and the whole room gets depressurized. The sets include some really huge cavernous spaces. There's this cool matrix green sort of crawl space that has all of, like, the lines on the walls of it that glow and it... It's just some really cool-looking stuff here. It's very impressive. The CGI doesn't really pass muster anymore, especially given how often live-action actors interact with those elements, but there's some really great model work for the ships and plenty of practical effects that hold up pretty well. If there is a big flaw in the film, it's the shallow character work. No one gets much of an identity beyond surface traits, and only three of them get really brief, unexplored backstories. One of them's got a son at home that they've missed a the birthday of to go on this rescue mission. One of them's got a dead wife that he blames himself for the death of, and another one, the captain, is haunted by a decision he had to make that caused the death of a crew member. And the ship conjures up images of these people to haunt them. It's The sort of apparition, the shining element of it. But since we don't know anything about them, really, it doesn't work. There's no reason to care about them beyond their immediate function in the story. The cast is largely capable, though, with the surprising exception of Sam Neill, who starts out good it gets increasingly unsatisfying as the film continues and asks him to do things and go to places that he seems really reluctant to do and to go. The character problems might not be the film's fault, though. I'll explain that. It It relies on dread for the first two thirds before the final act turns to some pretty horrific images. The film runs 96 minutes, but the original director's cut was 130 and Paramount saw that and were like, nope, especially after a poor test screening. And the MPAA allegedly, immediate, uh, at the first run of it, came back with an NC-17 rating. So Paramount was like, nope, they were apparently really disturbed by some of the stuff. And having read descriptions of what some of that stuff was, I can see why they'd be really disturbed.
0: But what would it have made the movie better...
1: Probably a lot of this stuff was in addition to some of the really gory imagery, which I actually don't think you needed all of. You got a lot of extra, really psychologically disturbing character work,
0: mm.
1: which I think would have improved the film, but Paramount noped out of that as soon as they saw it and they shredded it in post. They cut 34 minutes out of it and they were really rushing it too because this was a film with a really rushed production cycle. It was rushed into production to meet a summer, American summer, 1997 release date, after Titanic was pushed to the end of the year. So they needed something to fill the the hole there. And that... They they had to move really quickly, and so the editing was done really quickly as well. And there's it's just you can see some kind of the scarring that's left over by some of that truncated production schedule.
0: So essentially, what happened was Titanic was put in the lifeboats, and Paramount was holding the gun to Event Horizon, trying to keep it on board.
1: Well, they they. Uh, as my understanding of it is they delayed Titanic then they green lit it they had a month in pre-production before they went into production or something thereabouts and then they had like the director had six weeks after the end of shooting to deliver an edit so it's, it's a real quick turnaround that we're talking about here and the fact that it, that it is like I love this movie the fact that it has the personality and the effectiveness that it does is kind of amazing Paul W.S. Anderson gets sort of a bum rap now because of the uh, the Resident Evil movies and the, the Pompeys of it all. But this is a really effective film, and you, you can see he's got ideas.
0: It's a passion project.
1: Yeah. So all of that footage has been missing ever since. They've discovered bits and pieces of it in the past. There are a few bits of it on the dvd and blu-ray as deleted scenes but it's all videotape footage of dailies so it's all in terrible shape and they can't put it back in and the vast vast majority of it is gone forever it would appear except just recently scream factory the american blu-ray label have announced that they're putting out a special feature and they have a special collector's edition and that they have announced that they are in the process of trying to track down a lot of that extra stuff and it remains unclear how much of it they have gotten and how much of it they would even be able to get but that blu-ray is scheduled to come out on january the fifth so and
0: anderson signed hmm, off on it
1: yeah yeah he's in he's in uh he's got that's kind of been like his don quixote sort of yeah i wish i wish i wish i want to find that stuff like ever since but yeah, it, it, it remains to be seen how much of that they'll be able to locate. They've they've just put out, like, a bounty on it, basically, where they just put out a statement that says, look, if anyone, anywhere has any information on this, we'll, you know, come to us with it.
0: Because Event Horizon's one of those legendary lost footage
1: stories. It has gotten to that point, yeah. So I, I would actually, if they manage to find that stuff, I'll, I, I would potentially break the continuity of the list just to watch this again and mm. to see if there's anything extra, or even just, I don't know, add it on. There hasn't really been a situation like that where a director's cut of something has come out after I've already watched the theatrical version. So yeah. I don't know whether and I as would...
0: as far as the list is concerned.
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't... I'm, I am I. wonder, uh, maybe I'd put it on as a contemporary release where i put it on by the Blu-ray release date. I don't know. But... There's yeah, there's some crazy stories there too. Like a few, there was a false alarm a few years ago where they thought they had found the director's cut in its entirety, but it was really poorly maintained footage that they had. Paramount had apparently fobbed off to be stored in a in an old Transylvanian mine. Like, because when you have all these big boxes just full of stuff, you run out of places to put it. So, there's an old mine in Transylvania that doesn't, you know, do anything anymore. So, they just made a contract with that company to keep these boxes in the mine. And so, of course, if you're keeping a box in a Transylvanian mine, that's not going to be very good for all the elements that are in that box, you know?
0: I'd really like to make a narrative movie about the search for the Event Horizon footage. That That would be be such a compelling story. And then you get to the end and it's like. We've we found it. We've found the cut in this Transylvanian mine. Oh, look, a vampire's shit in it.
1: I mean, Great. you get all that stuff about, like, back in the day, before things were digitised and before, you know, back when it wasn't really that... There wasn't the film preservation instinct that there is now. Like, you get that the BBC recorded over all of their old shows, and so a huge portion of, like, the first 20 years of Doctor Who episodes were missing, and over the years, we've sort of rediscovered them through just... Like I think they every every five years or so they find a new collection. Like the last time I think it was like a radio station in Africa had a, a collection of those tapes in their basement, and then they they'll go through the process of doing that.
0: Yeah, it's like how bands go back and they look at tapes that they've got in their garage, and they're like, "Oh, this is a thing that we worked on years ago. We can release this."
1: Anyways, Event Horizon. <laughs> It's a unique, large-scale sci-fi horror of the type that we so rarely get. I mean, it's a huge, ambitious horror film. It's creepy, it's mysterious, and it's well-made, but it's only let down by some aged effects and a final edit that, as I said, excised over a quarter of the material, the cost of which appears to have been a deeper and more disturbing film. I'm hopeful that they find something there. And I'm also hopeful that... Amazon makes good on their Event Horizon TV series that they have announced that they're yeah. developing. I, I'm not, they haven't really said anything about what that's going to look like. They haven't really added anything other than they've got it in development. They haven't given it a series order. But Adam Wingard, who is the director of stuff like Your Next, Death Note, Blair Witch, he's directing Godzilla vs. Kong. He is attached as a producer and a director for the pilot episode. Works for me. I'm not sure that that's that's a premise that goes on for too long. I think if you do it, it's either got to be a limited series or, and I would prefer this, just make it an American Horror Story anthology series. Have each one be a sci-fi horror story.
0: That would be pretty tight. Like, all in the same universe, sort of...
1: An event, an event horizon event horizon is a name that like doesn't doesn't have to apply to the ship like it's, it's you the,
0: go Twilight Zone with it and you're like yeah. the things that we can find beyond the event yeah. horizon. I mean the,
1: the event horizon is the part of a black hole that once you get beyond the event horizon, there's no getting past it anymore yeah. there's no getting out of it But anyways, Event Horizon, the film is available for streaming on Netflix and Foxtel Now if you're in Australia and you are interested. I next watched 12 Angry Men. It is a legal drama directed by William Friedkin. It is a remake of the 1957 film directed by Sidney Lumet. Itself an adaptation of an old anthology show called Studio One, one of the episodes of that. And uh, as as people are probably familiar with this, it's about a a jury that is debating the fate of a young man who is accused of murder and the only holdout against a, a guilty verdict here that juror is played by Jack Lemmon fights to convince the rest that there is reasonable doubt in the case so i love the original movie like when i think about my favorite movies of all time it sort of depends on the mood that i'm in and the the you know time of day that yeah. that it is that what i will say is my favorite movie of all time but 12 angry men might be the most common answer it's a movie that I love. I think it is probably, even if it's not my favourite, which is a contested point, I think it is perhaps the most perfect movie that I've ever seen. I don't think there is a frame out of place in that original film. I think it is exactly what it needs to be in every way, shape and form.
0: It's precise.
1: Yeah. And I love the meaning of it. I love the what it's saying. You know, I think it's important. And it's a testament to that original movie... And to the genius of that script and that premise, that it survives what this television remake does to it here. This is a a Showtime production.
0: Oh goodness.
1: Okay, so the so the brilliance of Twelve Angry Men is its simplicity, right? It's twelve guys in a room talking, and through this, the story takes on the justice system. The Failure of Institutions, Bigotry, Male Power Dynamics and a whole whole lot more than that. It's packed full of stuff and the original film script might be the tightest ever written. Reginald Rose was the writer of it and he returned to adapt his own work and by messing with a good thing he's compromised the brilliance of his own original writing. It still works stunningly well which is a testament to the core framework. A lot of these scenes are just taken from the original script but the modernization in scare quotes has none of the delicacy and the intelligence it seems to be craving to justify its own existence by throwing out random swear words and changes in phrasing because this is a showtime movie now and we can swear and it only serves to underline in the end how similar it still is to the first film and how ineffective the what changes they have made are. It's like copying a paragraph from the internet and changing the adjectives to use as your own. Friedkin's direction isn't a problem. Friedkin is a good director. He directed The Exorcist, which is a fantastic film. But it's not nearly as clever and thoughtful as Lumet's direction in the original. He doesn't make nearly as creative a use of the space and it feels much more stage-bound. You feel the, conf- you, you feel more, it feels more like a play than the first iteration did. The first iteration made fantastic use of the fact that it was pretty much all in one room mm. and the claustrophobic elements that that ha- like as tensions in the room mounted, the way Lumet shot the film changed. Freakin doesn't do anything nearly as complex here, but it's fine. No, the, the, the big problem here is the cast. There are a handful like Courtney B. Vance, Armin Mueller-Stahl, and James Gandolfini, that acquit themselves well. And though Jack Lemmon doesn't cl- doesn't come anywhere close to Henry Fonda's version of the idealistic juror, he's perfectly competent. The rest of the cast, though, flail wildly ranging from the simply below average, like Tony Danza, to the actively bad, like Hume Cronin, Dorian Harewood, and William Peterson. And George C. Scott, who is like, he's the last holdout, if you've seen the original film. He's the guy whose own personal issues, whose own, well, there are a couple of assholes, but he's the guy whose own personal issues start to, with his son, start to invade his reasoning. George C. Scott, has this histrionic performance that totally undermines the character because there's no subtlety in it at all but the one at the very bottom of the barrel so awful is my Kelty Williamson as the racist juror it's such a key part and he ruins it totally he hams it up he acts like a cartoon character you really have to see it to believe it the facts are supposed to determine the case.
2: Oh, don't give me any of that facts. Second time of facts. Twist them any way you want to. Facts, facts.
1: It's awful. Even beyond that, there's the incredibly questionable choice of making the racist guy a black man who hates Hispanics. The movie is saying, well, black people can be bigoted too, which, okay... But we're talking about the criminal justice system right now, and there seems to be a more immediate point to be made here. (laughs) It ignores the original film's commentary on race and its effects in society in favour of this soporific whataboutism that stands out as the movie's most ill-judged attempt to be modern and differentiate itself. It's unhelpful that the character yells and rants like a stereotypical angry black man, And the movie goes out of its way to let us know that he used to be part of the Nation of Islam, which is a detail that has no purpose, seemingly, except to scare the white people. (laughs) I don't understand how a movie made in 1957 got this right, but a movie made in 1997 didn't. I mean, maybe the filmmakers were worried that having him be white when there were now other characters of colour in the room with him would be too ugly an element, but there's got to be a better way to handle it than this. I was entertained by this movie, but that's thanks to the brilliance of the original construction rather than this specific presentation. This is a less interesting, poorly acted, and entirely pointless remake of something that is perfect. If the original is like eating the world's best meal in a beautiful restaurant, then this is like taking the world's best meal home in a doggy bag, freezing it for two weeks, and then heating it up in the microwave and eating it in a folding chair in your bedroom closet.
0: Noob a sucker. <laughs> uh, that's that's one an of excellent be- way of putting that's it. That's one of your best metaphors so far. Thank you. He worked <laughs> hard on it.
1: Yeah. Just watch the original. That one's on stand. and of course we're talking about austin powers international man of mystery the first in the austin powers trilogy which means i watched the other two as well austin powers the spy who shagged me is the second film it is a spy parody and it's directed by jay roach they are all directed by jay roach and after quickly reversing all of the personal growth austin went through in the first movie The movie picks up with Dr. Evil developing a time machine. And he goes back into 1969 when Austin is still frozen. We'll get into more of this stuff in in the discussion of the first film. But he has this scheme to steal Austin Powers' mojo. And in the present day, Austin Powers realizes he doesn't have any mojo anymore. And so he travels back in time as well. And teams up with a similarly free-love-obsessed CIA agent named Felicity Shagwell who is played by Heather Graham, who is working for British intelligence for some reason, even though she's clearly American.
0: Well, it's it's a cross sort of agency corporation thing.
1: Heather Graham brings great new energy to the movie, and Mini-Me is the source of the best jokes in the franchise. Oh, he's, yeah. He's introduced in this film, but it repeats itself way too much. I think it's probably a little bit funnier than the first film. Mini-Me is an exceptional character. and. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Vern Troyer is the source of half of the movie's laughs.
0: I love the part where they're fighting in on on the moon, and it's like, oh you brought me my glasses, bless a little art. Does the finger. Man, yeah, that's, that's not, not right. right. kick.
1: The dynamic between Austin and Felicity has loads of chemistry and is really fun as well. I'm really disappointed that she's not in three. They kind of do a lot of the female characters dirty by not I've having got, them return. I've
0: got a potential reason for why. She's not in the third one, but it's a spoiler.
1: they apparently filmed scenes with her that were later deleted.
0: Hmm.
1: But Myers seems to have perfected the character in this film. Uh, The movie spends so much time repeating the first, though. We bring Will Ferrell back so he can do the same gag.
0: It's not exactly the same gag. Well,
1: it's very similar. We get another shushing scene. Because everyone, that was the most hysterical scene in the first film was where they just shushed each other for a minute and a half. It's no hassle. But I'm... All I'm saying... They're going to get a- i I'm just...
3: We, we, knock, knock. Who's there?
1: Look, let me tell you a little story about a man named Even before you start, that was a preemptive shh. For a minute and a half. And it's just so hysterical that we've got to bring it back for the second and do the exact same thing for another minute and a half. But wait, we've got to do it in the third one as well. Because that's like this signature gag, apparently. Everyone in the theatre is just sitting there waiting for the scene that goes on for a minute and a half where the characters shush each other. Because that's hysterical.
0: The characters aren't shushing each other. Dr. Evil is shushing Scott.
1: Oh, don't be pedantic. You know exactly what I mean.
0: I know what you mean, but pedantry is the point of this entire endeavor.
1: I mean, there's so much repetition of the gags here that it comes real close to being obnoxious. There are some really funny new material bits here, too. It capitalizes on the absurdist tone. I love the Jerry Springer scene, especially where (laughs) Dr. Evil steals the Ku Klux Klan members. I've got his hood! I've got his hood! I... Love the human shield scene. It's a parody of that scene in at the start of Goldfinger, the, the Bond film, where he uses the woman as a shield. But here he's just using the same woman as a shield for progressively more deadly weapons, up to and including a rocket launcher. A yeah, she just del- won't die. There was a deleted scene. I saw that. I don't, I don't know why it isn't there, but, like, later on, they just bring her back out of nowhere, where there's a drive-by shooting <laughs> so at Austin weird. while he's in the car, and he just quickly reaches over in the back seat and just drags this woman out of the back seat and uses her as a shield again, and then just chucks her back in the back no, again says, when he's done. He oh,
0: b- get back into, the, back into the boat, and it's just so weird. A lot of the deleted scenes out of these films are just bizarre
1: why why did they not keep that why did and it it has some of the great because because it has some build-up too where he's talking to heather graham's character and she's saying oh i can't believe you were married like what happened and he's like oh she turned out to be a robot oh you mean she was distant and unavailable no i mean she was an actual robot (laughs) she she was
0: made of like Wires and plastic and ball yeah. bearings. Is,
1: that's good stuff. Like, cut out the shushing scene and put that minute and a half scene back in instead. I love Fat Bastard, which is, again, Myers playing another character.
0: I love the intro to the character with the description of his history and the music. It's just got such a weird, threatening aura about it. I adore that.
1: His absurd obsession with the cannibalization of babies... <laughs> that when he spots Mini-Me, he immediately tries to eat Mini-Me wait a minute he kinda looks like a baby come here, I'm gonna eat you
3: I'm bigger than you I'm higher in the food chain get in my belly come on you're lucky wee man Ah. Dr Evil let me make your deal, all right? You get the motor, you keep your money, and I'll get your baby. Right. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, ribs. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, baby back, ribs. Chili baby
1: back ribs. Like, what the hell is that? but it's so absurd that it's hilarious to me it's got a huge reliance on scatological humor this time some of it's actually really funny others are just so lazy that it's pathetic like you get to the conversation between austin powers and heather graham and uh, with fat bastard at the end and they have that really you know the joke about him saying you know i'm I'm unhappy because I eat and I eat because I'm unhappy. You know, you know that really serious, and that's the joke mm. is a really serious. And then at the end, he farts, <laughs> and he goes, "I farted. Like, really, <laughs> really? That's all you've got?"
0: I, I, I love that because he's like, after that, it sort of ruins the tension of the moment, and it's like, "Ah, oh, I'm gonna kill you anyway."
1: I mean, it's, it's just like in the first movie where Myers throws everything at the wall to see what sticks. And I do think that as a whole, this movie has a higher stick rate than the first. Fair the enough. narrative, though, is like tissue paper. It's just an excuse to get Austin back in the 60s to team up with a like-minded member of the opposite sex. Dr. Evil's plot for world domination is so undercooked, I can't even remember what it is.
0: The Alan Parsons Project.
1: That's the third film.
0: Oh, shit, really? This was the Death Star.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) It makes for some good time-based gags, though. You've got Rob Lowe as a young Robert Wagner. He apparently had that impression in his pocket already. He was friends with his daughter for a long time, and that was, like, just something that he did to crack her up. So he already had that Robert Wagner impression before coming onto the film. Frau Fabissina played by Mindy Sterling, looks exactly the same in both time periods, <laughs> I which I it. think is, is is a great gag.
0: It's like, you look so right.
1: I, 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 I'm I a little disappointed at how unceremoniously they ditch Elizabeth Hurley from the first film. I'm not even sure about the reasoning about it, but at least they make it so over the top that it plays into the absurdist tone. There's another really funny deleted scene She turns out to be a robot, everyone. I mean, spoiler alert, no one really cares about spoilers for the Austin Powers movie. But there's another really fun deleted scene where Heather Graham is asleep on Austin Powers' couch and he comes in (laughs) while she's asleep and starts scanning her with a metal detector. Like, why isn't that still in the film? Cut out that fart bit and put that in the film. Like, some of the calls here are really, I don't know why they were made. But anyway, it looks pretty good. They clearly got a bigger budget. There's some good CGI. The space stuff that they do parodying Moonraker is pretty fun. The Fat Bastard prosthetics are over the top, but they're technically brilliant. Oh, yeah. This movie, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, is Oscar nominated for Best Makeup Effects. And earned. hmm Ultimately, it relies too heavily on recycled gags and the humour is still inconsistent, but it's, on the whole, more amusing and it benefits from excellent newbie performers Graham and Troyer. They steal the show, in my opinion.
0: For me, I love how there are some repeated gags, but you've got those little moments, and I think this is a thing that you notice watching it repeatedly like we have, where after a, one of the jokes, you just sort of sighs to himself and just sort of looks wistfully like, huh, yeah, that's, that's the joke. <laughs> and I, I, I adore that. I think Austin himself knows that it's a bit overplayed at this point.
1: I next watched the third film in the trilogy, Austin Powers in Goldmember. And in this one, Dr. Evil enlists the help of a bizarre Dutchman called Goldmember, who's played by Myers yet again.
0: I love gold!
1: Named as such as the result of an unfortunate smelting accident, to carry out a meteorite tractor beam scheme that, for reasons I'm not clear on, also requires the kidnapping of Austin's spy dad, Nigel, who's played by Michael Caine. Austin enlists the help of old flame Foxy Cleopatra, played by Beyonce of all people, to save the world again. This probably has the most muddled identity of the three, but it also has some of the loudest laughs. The whole trilogy receives my weak endorsement. Goldmember is a stupid gag stretched into a plot point. It's not organic. It's fitting a square peg into a round hole. They had the weak Goldfinger parody title that they then worked back from. That's its sole reason for being. He's also a sidekick to Dr. Evil. He's not even that huge of a part in the film. He's got this about the same size part as Fat Bastard does in the second film, and that's not Austin Powers in Fat Bastard. You know, it's it's not even a great pun. You know, Austin Powers in Gold Member. The the better one would be Osto Powers in Octopussy or something. <laughs> like like that's the Bond title to take and hmm. turn into a parody. And apparently, they actually did try something like that, but then then they had problems with whether they would even be allowed to put that on posters. <laughs> But the character himself of Goldfinger is one of the lazier in Meyer's gold repertoire. Member. Gold Gold member, I'm sorry. He doesn't have the complete set of idiosyncrasies. He's kind of half script, half sketched. The the bit where he's got all of this flaking skin, skin is decently absurd <laughs> and gross. The way that he that he eats it or he stores it in like a little cigarette case. It and and Meyer's croaking works, like I love gold. But there just isn't much to the idea here. And Foxy is a similarly underdeveloped character. She's no match for Vanessa and Felicity. They both pushed against Austin in different and interesting ways, but Foxy doesn't have a particularly strong dynamic here. The movie is a lot less interested in the relationship too. Beyonce sells it though. I admit I'm not the biggest Beyonce fan in the world. I mean, I'm not anti-Beyonce. I'm I think she's a very good singer with some very good songs. I just... I've never quite understood the whole Queen Bay thing, like mm. like the sort of mythologizing of her.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I'd I'd like to see how that began.
1: But she has loads of charisma, and she boosts the disappointing writing here. Kane's introduction as Nigel is very good casting, and he fits the tone surprisingly well. The character's a bit of a nothing, but Kane brings the 60s, 70s British thriller bona fides. He's game for it. And his role in the story works well as an extended gags on both trilogy enders and the propensity for so many fictional characters to have important parents. They have issues with. Uh, He also has this peculiar hatred of the Dutch, which is a fun little (laughs) oddity. All right, gold member. Don't play the
2: laughing boy. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch.
1: Or the bit at the end where he says something about... Those Belgians, they made you
2: so damn evil. And of course,
1: they share a border with (laughs) the (laughs) Dutch. Which is a great callback. But while the gags also include many repeats, I mean, again, seriously, they brought that shush gag back, everyone in the... The audience was sitting there going, I wonder when they're going to do the shush cake. The shush cake's the best, the best joke in this whole franchise. Really? They also have more variety than the second, and they get a lot of really good laughs from me.
0: They've got a few meta jokes as well, like with the subtitles thing.
1: Vern Troyer steals the show entirely. They capitalise on Mini-Me so well here, and his role in the story, particularly the third act, offers... Some of the funniest stuff in the series. And you get some cool flashbacks to Austin Powers and Dr. Evil during their days at the Academy, which is kind of an ill-defined what the Academy is and what it's trying to do.
0: (laughs) Who knows? Like, the two actors they get for that, surprisingly good. Yeah,
1: Aaron Himmelstein and Josh Zuckerman. They are perfect casting. It's kind of eerie, actually. It's spooky. They get
0: the voices and they get the looks just so Brilliantly.
1: But it's great fun to see evil in the normal world interacting with people who who Just are Just
0: regular criminals.
1: <laughs> Put it to you this way.
0: Cause
3: I don't know how to be, no crib on MTV, God only knows, got my mini-me in the GP, see how it goes. Evil's all that I see, and you ask me my name? D to the Rizzo, E to the Vizzo, I to the Lizzo. I'm a crazy... P- boy, you all knew that. Austin caught me in the first act, it's all backwards, what's with that? So I'll make a prophecy, from the dogs to the mini-me. Give me an escalator two-way bling-bling on eBay. Dominum!
0: Yeah! Stick yeah. that in your pipe and smoke yeah. it. It's it's it. That hard not life sequence. I adore that. That's just so hilarious. This is this is one weird inmate that last time we watched the movie really stood out. He's just got this weird look in his eye, just staring. Well there's yeah.
1: another there's another deleted scene where one of the inmates says, um
0: you have to go through me. Go through me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Mini Me burrows through his stomach like a drill and comes out on the other side. Stands on the table. The guy stands there for a moment, then falls over. And like in that Charlie Chaplin bit with the wall falling down, the Cross body the comes in. down and Mini Me goes through the hole as he's standing there on the table. It's bizarre. And I don't know why. Again, why did they not keep it? Cut the shush scene and put that one back in.
0: You're repeating yourself as much as the movie does.
1: Perhaps this has rubbed off on me. If you're finding it as annoying as I did this movie's repeated jokes, then maybe maybe that's karma. <laughs> In addition to the to the criminal stuff, it's also such great fun to see young Doctor Evil with all of these other teenagers. Yeah. And the way that he's his just sort of vibe is just so totally at odds. Because it's already completely bald. <laughs> It's maybe the funniest, but it's not the strongest. That's one. And it's not my favourite, which is probably two. But Troya takes over the movie, which is a good thing, and Kane works surprisingly well, but they've almost totally given up on narrative at this point.
0: I I love there's a lot of moments in this movie I love. I love the scene in Roboto Industries. Basically that entire sequence is brilliant to me, especially. The hiding behind the the statue statue fountain thing is just excellent. (laughs) I love the part where they're driving toward the submarine and they go into the Godzilla thing and they do that whole joke of, run, it's Godzilla. Due to international International copyright law, law, it's it's not. not. But still, we should run 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 like it is Godzilla. It's It's not.
1: I do like the physical exam as well.
0: Yes. The shadow joke from the second movie taken to that point. (laughs) And it's the same goon. It's the same henchman who's freaking out.
1: But that's such a great visual gag, too, of the, the gag of Austin standing on Minnie mes shoulders rather than the other way around.
0: And I love the part where he's flying, he's going down the vent. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And it's... <laughs> just
1: smacks into the wall. Yeah.
0: Dad cracks up every, every time. single time.
1: Oh, me too. I, like, I reversed that. I rewind, rewound and watched that multiple times, and then I rewound it again just to try and see if I could see the cut where the dummy was replaced with Vern Troyer, but it's seamless. I mean, we've pretty much already given it away, and I should probably—I mean, I just want like that—the the cut gag to Mini Me now dressed up as Mini Austin Powers yes. <laughs> is outstanding, and I love how I love how much Austin also clearly likes Mini Me once he starts working with him. Anyways, lastly for this week, I watched Mimic. It is a creature feature directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's based on the short story by Donald A. Walheim. And as we start the movie off, New York is in the middle of an infectious epidemic called Strickler's disease. And it targets mainly only children. And it's spread by cockroaches. And it's been two years. They can't find a cure. So... Working for the CDC, husband and wife scientist Dr. Susan Tyler, who's played by Mira Sorvino, and Dr. Peter Mann, who's played by Jeremy Northam, they introduce a genetically engineered Judas breed of cockroach, which, because of enzymes or something, kills the cockroaches, which is the way that the disease is spread. So that sort of gets rid of the disease. And those Judas breed cockroaches are sterile themselves with a four-month lifespan. And it seems to work. We flash forward three years later. People are disappearing into the subway system. Susan and Peter discover that some of the bugs survived and are evolving. Sinister figures also start to stalk them as they pursue their investigation. So i got a pretty simple pitch for you guys here. Let me see if I can sell you on this movie. It's about six foot tall cockroaches that stand on their hind legs and pretend to be humans.
0: Brilliant. Oh, I can get down that, that.
1: It's played totally straight. This should not work, and yet Mimic does work really well for the most part. I think that it's all del Toro. It's really goofy, and yet it is somehow effective. These figures, these mysterious figures, they're kept in shadow. We will later learn, it it sort of seems like they're wearing this long overcoat. We will later learn, come the reveal, that they actually have their wings wrapped around them like a long cloak.
0: Aww, that's nice.
1: Del Toro wisely keeps them obscured during these moments, and we don't really see them move either. The rare occasions that we do kind of look like a little kid standing on another kid's shoulders in a long coat, sort of toddling around the place. It's a testament to Del Toro's talent that it does work, and that it doesn't kill the movie entirely when you finally see one transform. Once the cat's out of the bag, you do see the justification for cockroaches being monsters. I mean, think about it. Cockroaches are infamously hard to kill. I'm pretty sure they've got those serrated legs that they use to sort of carve up their meals. So what if they were six feet tall and there was a subway full of them? That'd be pretty scary. Yeah. They can fly too.
0: Teenage mutant ninja roaches.
1: (laughs) The movie split, split into two halves. The first is really atmospheric and eerie. It's this build-up as Susan and Peter start to unravel the mystery and we begin to learn more about what's going on. It's largely above ground. The place is all rainy and dirty. The second half sees them stranded in an abandoned subway system with attacking cockroaches the size of a St. Bernard. It's less effective. Del Toro is clearly less interested in that second half as well. It's solid, but it lets down the great tone work of the first half. The cast are all extremely overqualified for a John Cockroach movie. You've got Mira Silvino, who was an Academy Award winner at this point. you got Josh Brolin. You've got F. Murray Abraham, who again is an Academy Award winner. They're all pretty good. There's a kind of underwritten special needs kid who's played by Alexander Goodwin that exists only to get himself in danger. They could have dropped that. But it's got that Del Toro visual style, incredible atmosphere and design, lots of shadows and... A great, mysterious, old-fashioned Marco Beltrami score. The lighting in the subway is brilliant. Like, they use flares, like yellow flares, to sort of give the whole thing this sort of spooky aura. Outstanding production design by Carol Spear. Del Toro classes this thing up a ton. It was originally actually going to be part of an anthology film. This and another installment, Imposter, were expanded to features before they started filming. But Alien Love Triangle was going to be the third feature, and it had already shot as a short film, to be included as, as an instalment in this anthology film. And it starred Kenneth Branner, Courtney Cox, and Heather Graham, and it was directed by Danny Boyle. It's done. It has never been released.
0: That's a shame.
1: Somewhere there's a completed Danny Boyle short film starring Kenneth Branagh, Courtney Cox, and Heather Graham that people have just been sitting on for twenty three years.
0: That's a sin. How could you do this?
1: There was also a a kind of troubled production. There was a behind-the-scenes power struggle between Del Toro and the Weinsteins, who were producers on this film. They almost forced Del Toro off the film, but he was saved by the intervention of Mira Sorvino, who had just won the Oscar and just basically came in and said, look, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm just not coming to work if Del Toro's not there. But Del Toro didn't get a final cut either. And for years, he was sort of... He regretted Mimic and the way that it went. He got a director's cut done years after the fact, which is the version that I watched, and so he's, he's decently happy with that one. Like, that's his work, he, he thinks. The movie is pretty gritty. There's no camp or humour to it. It's totally straight-faced, and it's super gross, even beyond the cockroach element of it. It's a gross film.
0: So you don't have any bugs going, how do you do, governor?
1: No, they don't speak.
0: Oh, that's a shame.
1: This is the best version of a movie about six-foot-tall cockroaches that stand on their hind legs and pretend to be people that there could possibly be. It just should not work, but it does, thanks to some pretty outstanding direction. And if anyone is in Australia and interested, it is available for streaming on Stan. Anyway, that's it done for me this week. Why don't you guys talk about what you've seen?
0: Right. It's a pretty short one this week. It was a busy week. Other people had priority over the television. But the first thing I watched this week was the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. It picks up directly after the events of the first Superman movie.
1: You've seen it before, I imagine?
0: Oh, I, yeah, I, I've seen yeah. it before. Both versions of it. And wh- so in the Donner cut, as opposed to the Lester cut, one of the missiles that Lex Luthor was using in his harebrained scheme to cleave off California Yeah, from the United States, Superman threw into space, thinking, you know, that'll be okay. It releases three Kryptonian super criminals, three of the only unreformable Kryptonian criminals, non-Ursa and General Zod. Played Uh, expertly by Terrence Stamp. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Th- non, non being yeah. a basically strength personified, yeah, and the destruction and Ursa being this really vicious, conniving, and f- uh, figure. They make a point in the in what Jor L played by Marlon Brando, says: nobody was safe, not even women or children. Yeah, so these three are bad news. Yeah, uh, and they've got such a glee in finding out they have powers too. Yeah, like. There's a part in the movie where they're storming the White House, the three of them, and Zod grabs a machine gun and is like, what a unique instrument this is. And he just stands there, just like, casually just shooting it, just having the time of his life. And he's just so fascinated by what is, to him, such a primitive weapon. Mm. Primitive but effective, Yeah, is what I believe he says. Uh, so, basically, the that's the setup for our villains. Yeah. The setup for Clark in this is, at the end of the first Superman, he grew attached to Lois Lane. Yeah. Lois, being another person who works at the Daily Planet, being another journalist, has started to put two and two together. Yeah. You know, it is quite obvious... Superman doesn't even wear a mask. (laughs) When Clark isn't there, Superman appears. When Superman appears, Clark isn't there. She's smart. She's smart, and there's a fantastic scene, which was actually their test screening that was put into this cut of the film, where she points a gun at Clark and threatens to shoot him.
1: Yeah, because I might be misremembering this, but the original plan was to shoot the first two movies back-to-back, wasn't it?
0: Oh, they did. They did.
1: But didn't they stop at some point because they were going over budget and they had, like, half of two done, but they decided to focus on getting one in cinemas first?
0: Yes. Yeah. Richard Lester eventually took over on number two. That's why we have the theatrical version of it.
1: But, I mean, like, that's also why we have the, um, the audition footage yeah. of those two characters being a scene from the second film.
0: But it yeah. really works. And it works. She fires the gun... Clark stands straight up and says, If I was just Clark Kent, you would have killed him. Then she goes, Not if I fired a blank. (laughs) So, that's a really nice moment. Christopher Reeves as Superman is fantastic. Yeah. He really nails the idealism, just the presence. Yeah. You know, that other uh, portrayals of Superman just didn't quite nail. Yeah. Thankfully, all my favourite ones nailed it. Yeah, notably Tyler Hoechlin and Henry Cavill. Brandon Ralph. Brandon also Ralph as well has yeah. nailed it as he's grown older. In yeah. returns, there's a bit of an yeah, yeah, not as strong performance as his future ones. Well, Superman returns. You have to put an asterisk next to it. But what always irked me was how that version of Superman divided his personality between Clark Kent and Superman. There's no. Seamlessness to it. And that's one of the struggles for the character in this movie. Trying to figure out who's the real person. kal or Clark Kent. And I don't feel the ending really does anything good with that. I understand that this is a cut compiled together with footage. But they redo the turn back time spinning the world thing. Which I hated initially. Because it reset a shitload of stuff. But it's worse, uh, worse off in this version because it resets everything. But it doesn't uh, reset the experiences that Clark has had. Yeah, and these but that's not the point. About him. That's not the point. We have more characters in these movies than just Clark Kent. Yeah, I'm not saying that we don't. But these movies are about his journey, yeah, growing to be the person who he's meant to be. Yes, my problem is that he learns his lesson destroys the fortress of solitude he understands that he has a responsibility rewinds time mm. so nothing happened so there's no consequences for any of the villainy from zod or lex uh, zod. they remain trapped in the phantom zone no, no and lex stays in no consequences felt by the world no consequences felt by the why world. Why does the world See, have to feel consequences? A, this is
1: just a reality-breaking thing. They should never have done the reverse time thing. It creates these problems. It also creates the problem of why he just doesn't do it. Every time something bad happens, why doesn't he just rewind time and change it? It's, 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 too, it's too overpowered a, a thing.
0: Yeah, and what bothers me is it it resets the st- back to status quo, really. And... That does a really does a real disservice to Margot Kid as Lois Lane, and I would have liked at least a hint that she remembered that he was Superman. I Just do a like hint the idea. Would oh, have been nice. I think but... it would be interesting if if Clark took Lois with him, but then again, flying that fast would have like peeled her skin off. There would be no way of getting past it
1: in the Lester cut. Doesn't he kiss her and
0: wipes her memory?
1: Mm. Yeah. And then you get that creepy stuff in the third or the fourth film, where he's just going and telling her that he's Clark Kent, so we can have a conversation with her, and then wiping her memory again over and over and over.
0: I think that happens in number three, but those ones three and four tend to focus more on Lana Lang. Yeah. As, okay. Uh, romantic. Which-
1: oh yeah. Apparently, Margot Kidder was was really supportive of Richard Donner, and that didn't. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Didn't go well with the producers. Which
0: version of the ending and the status quo thing do you prefer? Hate them both. No, but which <laughs> one do you prefer? Spinning the world around. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's, it's less, less creepy. creepy. It's less creepy because it, that gives Superman just such a weird vibe.
1: I want, like, like the whole thing of... of... I don't know. He's just walking along, and some old man, you know, spots him changing from his Clark Kent outfit into a Superman outfit. He just runs over and grabs the guy and starts kissing him to wipe his memory. Yeah, or just goes like, like what's he, the implication of that?
0: Or he just like flies right through the guy. Then he's like, nope, time for a redo. Yeah, why doesn't he just? Why doesn't he just go to go to the prison and stick his tongue down Luther's throat? <laughs> Like, just I mean, wipe his just mind. Completely wipe his mind. Why doesn't he just do that? And that's another thing: the powers of Kryptonians are undefined. Oh yeah, uh, like it, it seems telekinesis. As Zod has nowhere. some sort of heat vision telekinesis. Yeah, like he can uh, flip things with his mind. Jor L's continued existence boggles the mind. Boggles the mind <laughs> <laughs> because he's like both alive but also dead. It's, it's like far far. It's it's like. Every weird thing that was in the two Donner Superman movies were done better in Man of Steel, where yeah. it's both the Donner movies just smashed together. together. And just taking the great parts you take out the, of that. Ma- Man of Steel is basically, you get Although the, you miss the entire... You get the first half of the first yeah. Superman movie, smush it up with Superman 2. Of, yeah. And that's... Basically, Man of Steel down to the point of having a fight at a construction site. Yeah, what really lands though is characterization. Well, the plot suffers. You get Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Yeah, which is just great. He he tries to talk Zod into giving him control of Australia. <laughs> you he get just ca- wants Australia? Yeah.
1: Well, it's waterfront property.
0: Yeah, That's tri- the whole way around. You get Mogo Kid who's Lois Lane. The chemistry between Reeves and Kidder is just fantastic. And Otis and Miss Tesmarka aren't in this one. Miss Testmarker is. Oh, Otis, Otis gets left isn't. behind in yeah, the prison. Yeah, they leave Otis behind in prison. Because fair enough. You don't want to have to deal with that guy. The Donakut cu- is superior to the Lestercut yeah. in pretty much every way. I'm so glad we eventually got it. Yeah. In two thousand and six because it just wasn't right how they just kicked him away and just gave it to another director. Yeah, it I gives always hated when happens. to see his vision. And uh, what what ha- happened with the Donner cut is what I thought was going to happen with Justice League. I thought it was going to be in 15 20 years that finally yeah, Snyder like, gets the maker's movie, but Donner cut is the that's been pushed forward a little Don... bit. Don... The Donner cut is the legendary director's cut. It's the prime example, yeah. And I'm I the problems I have with the ending. The rest of it's just great. Clark has a really good character arc where I, he he realizes that it's not about it's not about what's him. fair. It's about what's necessary. You do what you do with the powers you have. Yeah, it's lesson. Even Joelle's the- like, this is a lesson you have to learn. And Son. as much as Marlon Brando doesn't give a shit on all of his later <laughs> roles, you still get a good fatherly vibe from him.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, like we, we said it in the Island of Dr. Moreau episode that it's a testament to how good an actor he is that even when he just couldn't care any less, he's still really compelling.
0: Oh, yeah. And Reeves is just fantastic. He, he is Superman. The scenes he has when depowered are perhaps his strongest in the film. Like, because you see yeah. the sheer vulnerability. Christopher Reeves, to me, is Superman. Yeah. Every other Superman actor is just doing a version of him. And this might be a bit of a spoiler, but I think I've talked about this already. It was so glad to see a semi return to that world in Crisis on If it hurts with Brendan Ralph. Because Brandon Ralph carries that same energy. Yeah. Especially since he's grown as an actor. You can find it... You are able to find the Lester cut at points on Binge. The Donner cut's much harder to find. But you can get it on iTunes, it's on like iTunes. Harley did. We've got it on Blu-ray. The it's available. The 4Ks are trash. Oh, um, they haven't released the 4K for... No, for the for, for the, for the first original Superman, Superman movies. It's not Yeah, great. but the the first Superman movie, there's a three-hour cut that exists somewhere. mm It's bizarre, there were so many different cuts of that film. Yeah. But anyway, moving on. I watched parts of the Exorcist TV show because Nyala, her mum and dad, started watching it, and I was still in the middle of doing uni work, so I sort of just went out to have lunch. Nyala was like, oh, I want some more horror shows to watch on my days off. And I said, did you you do know there's an Exorcist TV show, right? Exorcist being her, the Exorcist favorite being one of movie. her favorite movies. So I was like, "Hey, you know this exists." So they started binging the living hell out of that. They're up to the second episode of the second season.
1: Oh, that ends on a cliffhanger. That will not be resolved.
0: Yep. Yeah,
1: that's fine. Because the first, the first season is on the list because it works fine as a miniseries. Mm. Yeah. But the second season ends on
0: a cliffhanger. Yeah, and the. I can't really talk about the narrative because all of the really excellent stuff is in the last batch of episodes Mm. after a reveal happens. Let's just say it carries forth the same visual power Mm. of the of William Friedkin's Exorcist. It's set in the same world as the novel, however. Yeah. So not the film. Yeah. It's held together by some really excellent performances. You've got a brilliant Gina Davis performance, mm. where you get to see her go to a lot of different places with with the character of Angela Rance. You've got you got Alan Rock, Alan Rock playing like a perpetually sort of a perpetually confused and in pain down character. And I, I love me he some good, Al, good. I love that. me some good Alan Rock. Ever since seeing him in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's just neat to see see him show up. Yeah, like, he was in one episode of Medium, if I remember, where he was this greedy land developer, Uh, and there was a dead body found in one mm. of the plots of land. Uh, He was also one of the people in Speed, one of the passengers on the bus. Yes, he was. So I always love seeing Cameron show up, and the jokes that can come from that. One of my issues with this show, the past that I've seen, at least, is in The Exorcist... And the third Exorcist, because I don't, really we don't care talk about, about the, the second, heretic. The heretic sucks. Is that the demons in that are just sort of this otherworldly force of cruelty? Yeah, there's something about them that just feels so separate. Yeah, they human. don't have personalities. They're they don't more... have plans either. It's no. just the goal is spiteful cruelty for cruelty's sake, yeah. and. The series gives them gives the demon a plan. Yeah, yeah, it I, does. I don't I don't like it. It's the fa- the fact that it's a series kind of necessitates long kind of form storytelling, long yeah. form planning, but It makes it not a monster of the week thing. <laughs> no, it makes the demon in this one, which is called the Salesman, yeah,
1: too human. Now I'm just imagining the possessed kid talking like Jack Lemon in Glengarry Glen, Glen Roth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, jeez. Oh, oh, god, give kill a chance. This is like the third exorcism I've had this week. I love the idea of it actually just being a demon version of the sh- slap chop guy. <laughs> no, it's like the. Like, Two slaps. You're done. It's like the flex seal. The flex seal. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, look up those. Um, I stands. saw the man in half. <laughs> <laughs> I cleaved his spirit in twain. It held it together with
2: Flex Seal.
0: But Harley and I, as we were as we were watching the first episode of the second season, we just got sort of onto the idea of you go go into an exorcism with the same energy that the demon does, and start insulting the demon. The demon won't know how to respond. It's just like the demon's like, I am Legion, I'm the darkness. You're not Satan, you're not the devil, just do you have a self-worth problem? Because Do you have, self, do you have self-esteem issues? Just, just tell me what your name truly is. You don't need to lie to me. I'm here to support you. I love the idea of just being overly aggressive to a demon to the point where the demon's like, You know what? It's not even worth it anymore. I can't deal with these people. We also came up with the idea of a really, like, radical youth pastor going in and... Just being... Like, just jacket slung over their shoulder, over turns their the chair around. And it's, and it's like, like, so, what's the deal with you? It's just like, so, let's rap. It's like, let's rap, what's the skinny? And the demon's like, what are you doing? Fleek. Fetch. yass. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna yeet you right out of here. <laughs> hey there, demons, it's me. Yo, boy. Guess who's back? Back, back again. again.
1: I don't even know what most of those things mean.
0: (laughs) That's the joke! He just goes, Uh, dab on the demons. (laughs) No, he says the word dab, but he doesn't dab, (laughs) and that pisses the demon off even more. It's like, we made that stuff! Why are you using it against me? (laughs) But yeah, what else did we watch? Nope, that's it. (laughs) I think that's it. I think everyone else in the house had control over the TV Mm. this week. I I tossed up watching Bloodshot by myself, but that's a movie I want to watch with Harley. Mm. So now we're going to show you the trailer for Austin Powers, baby. In
2: 1967, an international secret agent was cryogenically frozen in case the world ever required his services again. Now, evil is threatening the Earth, and the time has come to bring him back. Into the 90s. It's
3: not unusual. Allow myself to introduce myself. Danger Powers, personal effects. Actually, my name is Austin Powers. Danger's my middle name.
0: I'm going to need you to sign these release forms.
2: Okay, name. Sex? Yes, please. In his time, he was the coolest secret agent alive. Unfortunately... It's freedom, baby, yeah! This is not his time. He's a swinger in a square world. A lot's changed since 1967. Bring on the sexy stews, man! Yeah! We're called flight attendants now. And he's a stranger in a strange land. This is my mother, Mrs. Exposition. Lovely. (laughs) What have you done?
3: That's not your mother, it's a man, baby. Why Won't this
2: wig come up? Well, now you take it to the left. You take it to the right. You're doing a hippie shake. Trino,
3: go. Trino, go. Ow. That really hurt. Who throws a shoe? Honestly.
2: Mike Myers.
3: Yeah, baby. Yeah.
2: Elizabeth Hurley. Don't
0: forget these.
2: Oh, thanks. Austin Powers. <laughs> International man of mystery.
0: Oh.
2: Always wanting to have fun, Austin. That's you in a
3: nutshell. No, this is me in a nutshell. Help! I'm in a what? nutshell. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was the theatrical trailer for Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. It is a spy parody film directed by Jay Roach. It follows a British 60s super spy named Austin Powers, who is played by Mike Myers. He reawakens after being cryogenically frozen for 30 years when his old nemesis, Dr. Evil, also played by Mike Myers, holds the world for ransom. And he is a sex-crazed fish out of water in the more conservative 90s. And that places him slightly at odds with both the modern world and his new partner, Agent Vanessa Kensington, who is played by Elizabeth Hurley. So why don't we all just go around briefly and just say at the top what we thought of this movie. Why don't you start us off, Sean?
0: I love it. I love this movie. I have for the longest time. It's... Again, one of those formative films for me, in in relation to my sense of humor. I can quote almost every scene out of this goddamn movie and out of the see- series, as I'm sure you've previously heard in the first half. I I think the character work is interesting. It it's a thing that I do when I've watched a movie a lot, that I sort of dig deep into the characters. I've done it with The Grinch, I've done it with these films, to the point where I think the second film in this franchise... And I remember saying this in class, and you scoffed, that the second movie has a very interesting look at grief. And it was grief that took his mojo away.
1: I will it still was... scoff. It wasn't grief, it was Fat Bastard with a syringe.
0: No, but... but, <laughs> but... It, okay, that brings into question what Mojo, the nature of Mojo, if it's like a self-renewing Sean, we're not deep diving thing, number two. But anyway, I love this movie. I also love this movie. It's foundational for me. While, yeah, it is a comedy. It is dumb. Austin Powers is a dumb person. Yeah, he's an idiot. Uh, but it's the fish out of water in the 90s stuff that really strikes a chord with me now. Because going from the 60s to the 90s, even from the 80s to the 90s the 90s was an inherently transitional time very, a very cold, lonely time. very lonely both politically and socially a lot of people were honestly afraid of the year 2000 and what that new millennium would mean this is set in 1997 those fears don't bleed through but the loneliness and it shows does. you that he has left his entire the, the world he knows is gone yeah there's no there's not a deep pathos to the character of Austin Powers because he is inherently a com- com- comedy character. But, but you do get moments of quietness with uh, him. Moments of quiet, little acting choices uh, from Mike Myers that really sell the fact that this isn't his time. No. and It's this not ain- even his bloody country because it's set in Vegas for the most part. Yeah, so, so there's a real sort of vein of sadness that runs through the series uh, with yeah. him sort of alienated from his past in a sense mm. uh maybe not so much in number two because he's back in the 60s but yeah. definitely in uh, number one and number three because he hasn't sorted out a- his he- issues with his father in number yet. three he's alienated from both his time and his father yeah
1: i have seen all of these movies before i saw them all when i was i think 11 an 11 year old me thought these movies were hilarious watching them now i'm not quite as hot on them as I used to be. Time has taken its toll, but they are still very amusing. And they're a silly pastiche of both the bonds of the 60s and the bonds that were happening contemporaneously when these movies were made. And I I think that's interesting. I will say, again, I haven't seen them in at least 15 years. And watching them now, having met you in the interim, John... Can I just say that this makes so much sense <laughs> yeah. I cannot overstate the amount of sense that this makes, given your sense of humor and the way that you idolize these movies and 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 love them it's I see so much of that now like I was watching this movie and I couldn't remember very much about them. I was just sitting there and like I was like. Oh, it, it was like something that just, just clicked.
0: All of the pieces fit together. Yeah, you understand me a little bit more now. This is
1: like the Rosetta Stone.
0: You uh, beautiful minded it, like you pieced it together like the ending of a Saw movie. A, a, a comment here, a little joke here, just everything sort of formed together.
1: You have a very Mike Myers inspired sense of humour.
0: <laughs> I think I do. Um, it's uh, it, yeah. It's sort of Mike Myers with a bit a with a bit of a helping of Monty Python with a bit of Jim Carrey.
1: I I would like to circle back to that thing you were talking about about grief because I don't see that at all in any of these movies except perhaps the stuff with his father in the third, which is not treated particularly seriously. I don't see the grief at all. Austin Powers never appears to be at any point in the first or second movie concerned about the fact that he is no longer in the sixties. Like he's what,
0: just, what, there are bes- two scenes where there's the scene where he's in the bed with Vanessa and he's he's recollecting he's recollecting about the past with Vanessa. Oh yeah, mother he's
1: nostalgic, and, but he's, yeah, not, but, but he's but not. He's not like that. Like you're talking grief. You're talking about active sadness.
0: He's sad about the fact that like, he missed so. He missed what? his chance. He, he missed so much. He missed his chance with her. And when he's watching the videos of all of the things that have happened, he can't even fathom all of these people that he idolized are dead now.
1: All right, I'll grant, I'll grant Plus you. Plus, there's that, bit.
0: that scene where he goes out to that bar and he tries, tries to, to be connect friendly, with people, people but, just laugh at him. Like mm. there's. I'm not saying that it's a giant vein of sadness. I'm not saying we gold rush the bitch, but I'm saying that
1: I'll grant you that bit in the first film.
0: After watching these films so often, you start to really it's like we're narrow talk- down. We're not talking about like easy to spot stuff. We're talking about minutia, <laughs> like to the point where we see editing problems in this film.
1: Right. Within we should, scenes. We should probably also touch on really quickly the fact that there are two different versions of this film. Yeah. There's the US Cut and there's the International Cut. And the International Cut has a bunch of extra scenes in it that the US Cut doesn't for some reason. Yeah. Um if you've seen the film, if if you're not in the US, you've probably seen the International Cut. The International Cut features scenes like like the continuing gag of henchmen's friends and family getting yeah. phone calls to find out that they have died.
0: Which are great (laughs) scenes.
1: Yeah, those aren't in the US version.
0: And it's a shame because the steamroller henchman joke, that is brilliant. The way that it transfers into what looks like it's shot for a TV movie of the kid riding down the street and going into the house. And then it shows that picture of the the kid's stepfather, the henchman. So you you two
1: watched the international cut. I watched the American cut because I have an American Blu-ray box set. Um, We watched the
0: American cut this time because that was on Netflix. Stan. Stan, yeah.
1: Most of the scenes that aren't in the American cut are on the deleted scenes of the American Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah, just be aware of that if anyone's out there searching for, I think we'd all probably agree that the international cut's the way to go if, you're, oh, yeah, if you have definitely, the option.
0: The editing's he's... much less choppy. Yeah, especially that, that scene period. where they're in Viacom, where it's... Mm. You know, you're seeing the cut from when they go through the doors to then suddenly the alarm is sounding, and you sort of get no context for that. But with the orange Sherbert joke, you get a little bit more of... They are so obviously not the people. It also makes Austin seem less incompetent. Yeah, that it takes a little bit longer to find, and it makes for better pacing when you're going from the guy getting done by the steamroller to them getting taken uh, out by random. Like tasks. the st- like, steamroller, more... th- the steamroller thing itself. I just think that's the hilarious, long, sort of drawn out. the The hench person is screaming. Uh, seeing the sea roller approaching. <laughs> but it takes so <laughs> long to get there. It also it's just like MOVE, move, get out of the way. No! 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 And the guy's just standing there screaming dramatically.
1: Yeah. Let like, before we get too far into the story, why don't we just briefly touch on the technical aspects of it? Yeah, but it, 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 you know, it's, it's a pretty good, vibrant... I mean, it was yeah. pretty cheaply made, but it, it it looks good. It has this very bright 60s sort of colour palette. It's very colourful. Um, and it's directed by Jay Roach, who is a director that I like and has made a very fascinating career pivot to really intensely political stuff um, based on a true story stuff. He directed that Lithgow movie about Roger Ailes, Bombshell last year he's directed a whole bunch of movies for hbo based on real life american political stuff he did one about um sarah palin in the 2008 campaign called game change he did one about the 2000 election called recount so yeah it's it's interesting to see the evolution of that that he goes from austin powers and meet the parents and meet the Fockers straight into Recount and Game Change and, yeah. Trumbo and all the way that HBO series with um, Brian that HBO movie with Brian Cranston as LBJ, he has interesting an interesting career path.
0: He does. It's kind of like Adam McKay. Mm. Uh, he went from the Anchorman series or duology rather to doing a lot of intensely political stuff as well. Vice. very yeah. very great.
1: Um, Intensely lauded work. stuff. It's, it's almost
0: like it's almost like comedy. Do actors and comedians are a lot deeper and a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Well, some, some, not, that, some. That's not, I, I mean, not all. I mean, Paulie Shaw's not going to go out there and play <laughs> Stephen Mer- Stephen Miller. Like you're not going to see that. You're not going to see carrot top do a Trump film.
1: There's yeah, it it looks good, um, and I think it's pretty well staged. Are, talking about Austin as a character seems like a place to start off. Yeah. I think he's Austin is a winner, you know? It's a good character, and Myers fully commits to the role, and he plays it with everything that he's got. He's lascivious and kind of stupid, but he's sweet and endearing as well. He's I, charming. He is. It could never be written now, though. It could never be done now. 60s attitudes not being appropriate is the point of a lot of the comedy here, but I don't think the current culture is in any mood to laugh Mm. along, Um, especially since Austin doesn't exactly evolve that much over the course of the series. Uh, I'm just saying that, um, you know, lovable sex pests aren't as (laughs) in vogue as they used to be.
0: Yeah. This is a very interesting element that has really... Struck me the last couple of times I've watched it, it's when Austin refuses Vanessa when she's drunk. Yeah, and he says it's just not right. Mm. And I'm just like,
1: wow, that's well, that's the line that you just can't cross. Even yeah. in 1997, you can't cross that line if it, you want it's, anyone it's to have It's surprisingly
0: mature. It's surprisingly mature for him because, and it's interesting because he's used to the charm working. Well, there's, really another, is. there's
1: another deleted scene. I don't think this one was in the international cut. It's basically just him sexually harassing a flight attendant that's mm-hmm. on the plane with him. No, and, that was not, no. Yeah, that and he's just, like, he's got this thing where he, um, you, know, you know, pats her on the butt and he's talking about how, you know, he has an itinerary for the flight where they all have an orgy together <laughs> and, like, it ends basically with the other flight attendants having to grab this woman and keep her from attacking Austin Powers after he, you know, t- slaps her on the butt and turns away. That it's, was
0: definitely not that in the was international not, yeah.
1: no. And And there, there I think you see the, the other uglier side of how that could have gone. I think yeah. that's a smart cut because as funny as a scene as it is, and it is pretty funny, um, the, the actress playing the flight attendant is excellent in that scene the way she's just like reading this itinerary out and uh she's like you and you want us to change into these outfits and she holds up this like skimpy uniform which is yeah that's 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 not gonna happen <laughs> and, like she's very good in it but you you can't they're they're already walking kind of a fine line with yeah. Austin Powers mm. um and you can't really cross it without us turning on him I think.
0: Like- yeah. They tow the line. They tow the line that he comes off
1: charming. Yeah, and they tow the 1997 line.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm not sure they tow the 2020 line. I mean, I know it's hard to unwrap your own previous experience with it, but like, imagine Mm. if you were watching it, if you were watching that movie fresh now in 2020 as a recently released film. I I think that the conversation around it would be a lot different. I'm not mm. entirely sure that all of I think. You know, let me. I'm trying to just be as clear as I can here because I don't want to be misunderstood. I actually don't think that it would be that fair to the movie, the reaction no. that it would get now, because no. I think mm. a lot of this movie is explicitly about what um, the the changing of yeah. of sexual mores and things and gender dynamics in the time that he's frozen, that he is sort of this artifact of the sixties. That's part of... And he of, does learn. Yeah, that's the point. But he, he doesn't learn that much. Let's not overstate that. He's still doing a lot of that stuff in, you know, three and two and three. But I actually think it would be a little unfair t- to the movie to have the reaction that I think that it probably would. Because even though I think it probably would step over some lines by 2020 standards, I also think that we've just kind of gotten to the point where... There's a lot of outrage for outrage's sake now, and everyone there will be a whole contingent of people who would just be watching that film, waiting for it to have even the slightest toe out of out of line, out of the the general consensus of what is appropriate, and then there would be the pylon. And I think that that's kind of a poisonous environment for comedy and for satire and for drama as well. And that's not me saying that there aren't lines that films shouldn't cross. Of course that of course there are, but I think you've also got to leave room for nuance and I think Austin Powers is nuanced enough. I know that's kind of strange to hear me say that given some of my problems with some of the comedy in it, but it's the point of the movie is not an endorsement of Austin Powers' behaviour. No. The point of the movie is talking about the differences in the time yeah. periods.
0: It reiterates multiple times how things yeah. are just it's a different kind of movie than the one he's used to. Like, he punches Bowser Exposition's mother. Yeah. Because he, thi- he just naturally thinks, oh, there's a woman who is has somehow snuck away into this scenario. It must be a dude. It must yeah. be one of Dr. Evil's henchmen. Because a similar thing happens at the start. Yeah. The waitress, like, before the punch, is definitely a woman. <laughs> And then after the punch, it's obviously a dude. dude. Like you can see the heavy legs of (laughs) the heavy man legs.
1: To finish, to yeah, just to to finish the point that I noticed you being conspicuously quiet (laughs) during. um, I I was just listening to your point. No, I I do think that uh, that there's. I people would steer away from this now. Writers would steer away from this now. Filmmakers would steer away from this now. I think studios would be nervous about it now. Um, and I don't think that's particularly fair. I, don't I know of
0: certain studios who wouldn't be. Yeah. Looking at you, Full Moon.
1: And I and I don't you think it would be... You wish you had
0: something as well written as this.
1: And I don't think it would be necessarily... And I don't think that's a necessarily a good thing. Because when it's done mm. well, and I think this yeah. movie... It has its moments of doing it well. I'm not saying it does it all well, but... I'm really hesitant to endorse the the loss of satire and comedy about those kinds of issues because they have real value Mm -hmm. and it kind of, you know, it's, yeah.
0: It'd be a much more nuanced take now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: The the 90s back then, like, in terms of gender politics themselves, weren't as... uh,
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Clearly defined. And, like, I'm, was, not, I'm not saying that this is, like, I still think well. that by 2020 standards, this is hardly a perfect movie from from hmm. that. And and there are things that you could you could point out and be like, yeah, that shouldn't be in there if it were made now. But, I mean, you just look at, like, something like Fat Bastard, for instance. Like, that's yeah. a character that's just, no, you're not doing that now. Um, but, yeah.
0: Although, I- again, Fat Bastard, he toes the line of being so ridiculous Ridiculous. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and so, like, yeah. simultaneously... I suppose I, just, I
1: suppose I just want to underline the point that I'm yeah. not saying that they should be able to do whatever they they want without any um, criticism whatsoever, mm. but I do think that there should be an allowance for satire and comedy, yeah. as long as it's yeah. done intelligently and it has something to say.
0: Definitely. Yeah. It's about the way it's done. Uh, and, you and, know, yeah. that sort of thing. And it's not like these are thin characters like even fat bastard he's got i'm not saying that it's like he's a very deep character but he's got little shades where in the third one he's like yeah i take my sumo wrestling very seriously
1: it's yeah it's just and,
0: and it's like yeah they are characters they're f- not fully formed but they're fleshed out enough so that you know what their vibe is. And and a lot of the commentary and the construction of these characters is really based around early Bond. Oh, yeah. Uh, We really... uh, We could talk about that now. Dr. Evil's very Blofeld. (laughs) I guess I'm I'm
1: saying that in the current culture where it seems like every six months another random person on Twitter finds out that Robert Downey Jr. was in Tropic Thunder and that becomes a thing for a day and a half. I mean, with no context whatsoever. Um, I feel like this movie would have some problems. But anyways, mm. we, we can talk about the Bond influence because it's it's not necessarily playing so much on Sean Connery as Bond, but it's definitely playing on Roger Moore, which is interesting because Roger Moore is the 70s Bond. He's not the 60s Bond. Yeah. Um,
0: well, because the 60s Bond is a bit too uh, problematic. Connery I mean, is even a bit back too then. much.
1: He's pretty, well, not back then. Not by the standards of the sixties, but no, certainly by not. standards uh, the stand of the nineties. Like he's yeah, that Bond, and it's not that Bond is not easily taken to a comedic character. That Bond, no. I, have a, I have this theory that I um that I came up with watching the whole Bond series back to back to back. Uh, yeah. At the start of the list, where that Sean Connery's iteration of James Bond is an out and out sociopath that oh, he has yeah, some sort not. of clinical diagnosis. Um, oh Yeah. That, He's the actually thing that not was, a like, oh, good
0: dude.
1: yeah the thing that I always always come back to is when they have lazenby take over for that one film um and he has he has that scene where they're doing the ski chase down the side of the mountain and uh one of the henchmen like goes into a wood chipper or something and lazenby turns around and he shouts over to the the, the lady of the film shouts over he had a lot of guts. And it's just something about the way that Lazenby delivers that line where he's just so, I don't know, he's kind of like a boxer dog in that he's just has this kind of stupid, over-enthusiastic, excitable quality to him. The joy.
0: And that's sort of the same with Moore.
1: Where it, it works, but then you, you imagine the Connery iteration of that character doing that same line saying And it's you chilling. had a lot of guts and you're just like, Oh my god, what what's wrong with you? What's you're crazy?
0: Like even in some of the Roger Moore movies they make him like in uh Man with the Golden Gun, he's a little bit more you know,
1: aggressive and
0: forceful. Yeah. And you can tell that Moore is...
1: He didn't like it.
0: ...more comfortable with, say, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Where it's more of a... He's more it's of a an renaissance adventure. Man. He's an adventurer. He's more of an adventurer. He's more... He's still got moments where he's a little bit psychotic, but that's just James Bond. But he is more likable. Like, early Bond is not charming. No. And does not lend itself off to comedy.
1: But, and, and even with Austin Powers, we're not just talking about early Bond either. We're also talking about, and this is throughout the film, the direction that the Pierce Brosnan films are taking. So yeah. this movie, the first Austin Powers movie is two years after GoldenEye, which was like about a battle laser, a space laser. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then by the time you get to Goldmember, it's coming out the same year as we get um, Die Another Day, which is infamous for, you know, having James Bond surfing a tidal wave and an invisible car and a a hotel made of ice, a secret villain lair made entirely of ice. So And
0: it's fantastic.
1: Right, and then the main character is this Asian villain from the start of the film that's had plastic surgery to look like a white guy played by Maggie Smith's son. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's an absurd film. Oh, and, it is. Well, and,
0: the, and the way that he kills the guy at the end of that movie is ridiculous. And, and it tracks
1: into self-parody. At that point. So the Austin Powers movies are sort of commenting on that as they go. But then also they're so in touch with the Bond franchise and the tropes of the Bond franchise that that twist that they do with with Dr. Evil in Goldmember, spoiler alert for Goldmember, that we will find out that they are... Dr. Evil and Austin Powers are secretly brothers. This Blofeld-like character is brothers. And then you go to Spectre... And we find out that Blofeld is James Bond's adopted brother, his foster brother. And it's like just, it's the exact thing. Yeah, it's
0: it's like a stable loop sort of thing, feeding into each other. It's an Ouroboros of inspiration. And it's interesting because the Johnny English franchise is sort of existing on the fringe of this Venn diagram. Yeah. And it's like dipping its fingers in and its toes in. It doesn't go full. Moments. It doesn't go full Bond, but it doesn't but, detach itself. It doesn't completely. detach completely. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting the difference between the '90s Bond and the '60s and '70s Bond, where it is less about a uh, one bad guy going and doing something and being just the villain you know, you Dr. Evil, and Dr. No, and Scaramanga, and all of this, to the 90s, where it's governments. And you're starting to see a lot more political thrillers go to the bent of, there's this one bad guy,
1: we see, but and, they're
0: working with yeah. a country.
1: And now it's terrorist cells. So, yeah, And yeah. that's what I think is, if they ever do an Austin Powers 4, which they keep threatening to do, they have been for, like... It's ever not since,
0: a threat, it's a promise. It's ever
1: since 2005 they've said that they've been working on it. But I think that's like that's the brilliant opportunity there, is for that first Austin Powers movie, post-Daniel Craig Bond, post-Jack Bauer, post-Jason Bourne, to comment on that and comment on how serious and gritty and kind of arty oh, these yeah. kinds of movies have gotten and have this really comically grizzled... Middle-aged Austin Powers who has to come back in, and you know, they they could be anyone. You know, it's not just this evil guy in a lair now. It's yeah. this, you know, cell and it's fist fights and it's chasing people and to to do that really sort of self-serious thing and to skewer it, that's the joke there, and that's yeah. what makes me really interested.
0: You partner him up with a person who is that self-serious kind of spy,
1: exactly. You get you get a um, a Jack Bauer type.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you could get Matt Damon. I think he'd be down for it. But,
1: but like like the whole idea of of I mean, and it became infamous, and it's in it's in so many of of all of these kinds of movies now. Less so now than it was in the two, the aughts, but mm. the torturing to retrieve information. Yeah.
0: I mean the ball whipping scene that becameette yeah
1: or like how Jack Bauer how in every season of 24 he's got to torture at least three people to <laughs> get information at different points I will never yeah. forget the um I think it's the first season that he's in the middle of torturing a guy and he accidentally gives a guy a heart attack and so he can't get the information <laughs> what <laughs> But, like, like, he just... And it got to the point where it was almost kind of revolting, and that became, like, a thing hmm. about that show of, are we, are we just going too far in this? Because there's this whole sequence of the first season that I will never forget, where Jack Bauer is, like, beating this guy and telling him how far he's going to go, and he's like, do you know, you know, this certain overseas... Spy group has this thing where they'll they'll get a damp cloth and they'll slowly inch it down and down and down into your throat, just so you can still breathe, but you know it's gone right down into your stomach. And then we'll leave it for a few hours, and you start to digest it a little bit, and then you yank it out of your stomach line it comes with it. It's just like, all right, keep subtle, and I'm not sure any of us really needed that. That's kind this stopped peeing. yeah (laughs) it it became this sort of like uh
0: journey into the mind of a psychopath well
1: yeah this aurora boris of and it's and it's that post 9-11 post war on terror kind of when the u.s was doing its extraordinary rendition practices when it was doing its um practices of torture yeah uh or as, as as i believe the the george w bush administration called it enhanced interrogation it, it, that became a huge part of the media because of course the media is always a reflection of what's going on at, at any one time but I think that there's a real there's a really clever Austin Powers 4 out there that comments on all of that and comments on, you know, the artiness that Bond movies yeah. have sort of gone for the Roger Deacons of it all And
0: I was exactly thinking that
1: yeah, and comments on on all of that and has sort of a go at the self-seriousness and the grounded grittiness of it. And I think that could be really fun. It's so s- sad that Vern Troyer wouldn't yeah, be able yeah. to be in it now. He's he's passed away. Because he was a powerhouse performer. Um, pretty recently. Performer. Um, but that, that yeah, that could, could be really fun if they do it. And I sp- I've got to imagine that they would have to bring in um, yet another new character for Mike Myers to play.
0: Oh, yeah. Hmm. And can we can we talk about dr evil what a fascinating person Mm. what a backstory Uh, i have to say my one of the best scenes of him in it is him talking about his childhood yeah (laughs) that like that speech
1: oh my god That monologue is patch that whole thing in here sean
3: very well where do i begin My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet My father would womanize, he would drink He would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy The sort of General malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. My childhood was typical. Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. When I was insolent, I was placed in a burlap bag and beaten with reeds. Pretty standard, really. At the age of 12, I received my first scribe. At the age of 14 is a roastery named Vilma, ritualistically shaved my testicles there really is nothing like a shorn scrotum it's breathtaking i
0: suggest you try it you know we have to stop that monologue is god tier. Mm. yeah monologue i love the part in it and i'm not going to say the whole thing because obviously we've patched in the audio but where he says sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being Mm -hmm. lazy the kind of insanity the, no, the, the kind sort of, of genius John, that only it's, no, it's the sort of general malaise. malaise that only the genius possess in the insane lament.
1: See, see, I I like the wording of that, but also there are parts of it, and I love that that. The whole scene, basically that whole thing of the the father and the son therapy, yeah. with Carrie Fisher as the therapist.
0: We say we want to kill each other, but we really don't. Like, no, no, the boy I'm, is actually quite astute. I, I really am trying am to kill him, but so far, unsuccessfully, 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 he's quite widely like his old man.
1: <laughs> but um, the, the 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 sort of the, the chestnut bit is kind of too far of a reach for me. Like hmm. it sort of plays like like an improv bit where. He needed to finish the sentence, but he couldn't come up with anything that made sense. I, I much prefer the he would get drunk and make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. <laughs>
0: That's,
1: and there's Hannibal, like you talk about it, there's Hannibal Lecter in him too. Oh yeah. There's, there's sort of the very specific way of speaking that is very much what Anthony Hopkins doing in... Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. The when, when he's precision. going to
0: when he's going and trying to hug Scott. Yeah. It's like don't don't look at me like I'm freaking Frankenstein or something.
1: Like kind of down to the outfit that he's wearing, that mm. all white yeah. outfit. And you get of yeah. course the scene in the third movie where Austin talks to him in the yeah. the box, the box like he's in at the, at the end of Silence of the Lambs. But um
0: yeah, he, he even says row the row. he even says the whole uh fly fly. Yeah, he bursts thing. out the, out of the door and it's like uh okay. Um also, I just like the immense frustration Dr. Evil has with the incompetence of the people around him. Yeah. Like the 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 first plan to uh threaten the royal family with a with a scandal.
1: Yeah, which if you go into it I'm actually kind of surprised because. If I just find the date, give me a minute here. Um, Yeah. So this movie comes out a couple of months before Princess Diana dies. Mm. Mm. And it comes out in the UK afterwards. Shit. Um, So that whole line was cut entirely.
0: Oh, yeah. That's fair. I think it's Uh, been
1: reinstated more recently. mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's also the. I will get one of my lasers. Yeah. To burn a hole in the ozone layer so it drastically increases the risk <laughs> of skin cancer. That, too, like, that too has, has, also, has happened. also happened.
1: But they Shit. make they make a lot of good beats mm. out of all of the stuff that he's missed in yeah. in the time. And that carries over. That carries over into Death Star, into the Alan Parsons project. Um, <laughs> I love the, that joke. The,
0: the, the, it's like uh we tried to get you sharks but uh in the time when which you were frozen they, they were put, put on the on endangered, endangered species, species list. <laughs> we could have made it it's like we could have made it happen but the red tape would have taken months well all i want are sharks with freaking lasers attached to their heads now my cycloptic colleague, colleague informs me, informs me that, that can't this can't be done. done so what do we have seabass they are mutated seabass are, are they, they ill tempered oh yes it's a start. start.
1: <laughs> i do love the character of scott played by oh yes, He's so queen. good that that this character this incredibly idiosyncratic, you know, could never exist in real world, in the real world villain to put him in a serious family situation. Like, um, and, Mm. and the fact that Seth green is playing it so straight that he's playing it as like the only sensible person in that whole building.
0: It's the whole, I have a gun Gun in in my my room. room. I'll bring it down here. We can kill them together. It'll be fun.
1: I, I, and I think the henchmen are are mostly pretty fun, but, uh, You want to talk about some yikes.
0: Yeah, Um, random tasks.
1: Yep. And uh, there are a whole bunch of certain things about Robert Wagner's personal life that Mm. none of which we must say have been confirmed or stated to be true, but, and it's way too hazy for me to be confident enough to go into it on this podcast, but. If you look into his marriage with Natalie Wood, you will find a whole lot of internet conspiracy theories about some things there, which, again, gotta say, this podcast is not endorsing. We are not saying that any of it is true. We are simply pointing out that those conspiracy theories exist. Moving on. Um,
0: the random toss thing is less. Yes. Sir. Oh, yes.
1: Um, Joe's son is the actor. He was accused of uh, being in... Well, he was... He was picked up for, I think, vandalism in 2008. And they ran his DNA through the system and it came up in an unsolved gang rape from the 90s before this yeah. movie was uh, was made. And because of statute of limitations stuff, um, they were unable to pursue that charge. So he has never been convicted of that, it should be said. But they threw a bit of... of legal workarounds they charged him with torture instead and that had no statute of limitations and he was convicted of torturing this woman and he later killed his cellmate in prison and was convicted of voluntary manslaughter so uh and and the really like creepy part of that is like the woman later realized that she just had the dvd of austin power sitting there the whole time not knowing that that was the guy that had done this to her um but yeah, it's kind of a rogue a real life rogues gallery there with with John Sun, Joe Sun there. Um again, not necessarily commenting on the validity of those rumors about Robert Wagner and those conspiracy theories for legal reasons. Just saying
0: they exist.
1: Just saying they exist.
0: Yeah. Uh the character of Random Task is not a particularly deep one. It's an odd job yeah. parody. Yeah. But instead of the hat, it's the shoe. It's the shoe. I love at the end, how uh he throws the shoe at Austin hits him in the head, then Austin's like, ow, just gonna leave a bruise, you idiot, yeah that's gonna leave a lump. <laughs> who throws a shoe too, honestly,
1: honestly. <laughs> and see see this is I think is where our sense of humors diverge. I think that that the three of us have a lot of the same tastes, but I think that. The part where our sense of the part where our tastes diverge the most is in our sense of humor, because there are parts of this. Like you, you say that who throws a shoe, honestly, and to me that's a line that doesn't exactly work for me, because it feels a little too obvious and a little too Mm. hammering home the gag a little too much to me. That scene's funnier if they don't have that. If they just have him throw the shoe and have it bounce off Austin Powers' head ineffectually, and then leave it at that. And that sort of goes on to part of the the stuff that I think that I don't particularly like about the comedy in Austin Powers, just because it doesn't suit my taste, is the way that it carries on with everything too long. The way that huh. the the joke of it a lot of the times is just extending it out, it's extending the same beat out for an extended period uh, of time.
0: What about the extension on the end of the big supervillain laugh thing?
1: I do kind of like that one. That that works, because it's kind of like, well, you, you always cut away before you get to the end of the laughing bit. And, mm. you know, if everyone's sort of been posed and, like, what do they do? How do they move on <laughs> from that? But but a lot of the stuff, like... I, I think that the stuff with Will Farrell in the basement works well, because that's... Mm. It It has a good... um escalation to it. But, but a lot of the stuff that they just... I mean, the urination joke, the evacuation complete. I'm like, alright. So it's just that he is urinating and then he's stopping urinating and then he's urinating and he's stopping urinating again and then he's urinating again and he's stopping urinating and it just sort of... It just rolls on. And I can see how for some people... Like, for your sense of humour, John, as I said, this is like a Rosetta Stone for you. <laughs> um but just for me it it doesn't quite click very much and the stuff that I, there is a lot of stuff that i like in here like even some of the scatological stuff i like a good gross out bit of comedy like that's another thing that i want you to patch in right here is the whole who does number 2 work for
2: <laughs> hey partner how good one.
1: okay
2: Come on, you gotta relax. Don't force it. Gonna blow out your O ring. Drop a lung.
3: Who does number two work for? Who does number two
2: work for? That's right, buddy. You show that turn who's boss. Hey, hey, just grab a hold of something, bite your lip and give
1: it hell. Come on. We're going to get through this. Hey, that, that sounds pretty nasty. How about a courtesy
2: flush over there?
0: Jesus Christ, boy. What did you eat? What a brilliant little segment! From the moment Austin enters that bathroom to the moment he leaves, it's like it's you didn't happen to see anything Anything at all. all. Sorry, Sorry. I do like the part where he's talking to the he's talking to the American, and and the American's like, "Oh, what's that get up? You're part of the show." Yeah, but the way that he English
1: that's the bit that I love is that he gets that's the bit that I love is that the American gets so into it. He's like, oh, "Come yeah, on, man! We're going to get it. through this together." But you'll lose, <laughs> like, do But, but then, then at the end, it's just that one bit that for me kind of steps on it. Is you have the bit where Tom Arnold looks into the toilet and sees the guy upside down and says, "Well, what the hell did you eat?" And I'm just like, "Well, we, did we really need that."
0: I've always been confused, and this has—it's always confused me about why exactly is that character saying that for the first thing. And what's the look in his face What's that look on his face? Is that a look of joy? Is is he like... Is is he asking because he wants to shit out an entire man? Like, what's... What is the joke It looks like... The look on the face is one of amusement that Arnold couldn't quite so, I,
1: I think that they're just trying to put a button on the scene, and I just don't think it works. Yeah. I think it works better if you just cut that bit and just mm. cut from Austin in the cubicle to the next scene.
0: Um, but I, I like the that henchman, the Irish henchman, mm. Patty. the whole Lucky Charms thing.
1: Who you get a little bit of in the Spy Who Shagged Me? Mm. The flashback mm. played by He's Kevin. He's there. He's
0: one of the hench people. Yeah, I like Frau. No, I, 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 love that. I love that entire scene where he's sort where it's the lucky charms joke. Jeez. Scotland Yard loved the hands of that little piece of, piece of evidence. evidence. Yeah. they would always after me, lucky charms. I, I love when he introduces Frau. It's like uh, the Frow founder Frow. of the militant wing of the Salvation Army.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to pull up one thing, which is. I, I had to, like, rewind and double-check, but is Will Ferrell in blackface in this movie?
0: No. Uh, no, I just think it's a tan.
1: His... Uh, I'm going to text you a picture, because I think it's actually... Second
0: one, maybe. I don't know about this first Not in the one. second one. In the second one, he was a lot lighter. I've taken notice of this. Yeah. Trust me, I have. I've I've looked into it.
1: I'm, it's not like, great. <laughs> yeah. When you Google... um. When you Google Will Ferrell Austin Powers, you'll find a couple of articles mentioning the fact that, at the very least, he appears to have been made to look a lot darker than
0: yeah. he actually mm. is.
1: Let me just text you this this one photo from uh, from the film, which is I actually, think it's a pretty good argument for you know that's not Will Farrell's skin tone and that's not tan. No, either.
0: no, it's a little yikes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bit. It yikes. didn't go the full, you know. Sort of thing. You see, th- there are certain elements of the movie that don't work anymore. Mm. Uh, and and a, lot of it, me, a lot of the Lawson... movie seems to be improv. Oh, oh yeah. definitely. And that's. You talked a lot about this being a Rosetta Stone for John's sense of humor. Uh, it also is kind of my, but mine mm. tends to be. My sense of humor is, tends to be a bit less scatological. What do you mean? Uh, less Sub- chaos.
1: Yeah, you're... you're, okay. you're okay. I, what, I have noticed that what Harley's What does scatological
0: sense of, mean in this context? Because all scat over the place. is... No, like scato, Jesus, scatological you.
1: is dirty. Is dirty humour. That's yeah. what scatological oh.
0: means. Yeah, but, that's... That, I was yes, confused. But yours seems to be more like scattershot.
1: That's the better term. You, John has a very absurdist sense of humour. Yeah. And I think that Harley's just... as a, As a third party, just watching the two of you interact sometimes, Harley's often seems very... Um, word based, like it's it's very much about the language that he uses at times, and about bringing in specific, uh, specific complex ideas. And your humor, Jean, is like like I think of the the difference where um, like just one of the things like when we were talking about the Lion King, for instance, and we were talking about like Jean, you brought in the very scattershot... shot, the the absurdest idea mm. of. Um, Simba dressing up as Batman, but it, it's Harley that brings in the thematic connection of no, he'd be dressed up as a wildebeest. Like, like that's the that's that's I think the good differentiating line between your two senses of humor, and I think it works. It works yeah. well with the two of you together. Mm.
0: That's a, that is a good litmus oh. test. I, but, but it's it's also the crocodile doing the valedictorian speech. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Um, I, I have to say, this is also, it's, it is, this movie is foundational for my sense of humor, not necessarily the jokes I say, because I love smart humor. Yeah. But I can get down with some dumb shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, as long as it's not, like, inherently mean-spirited. Yeah. Or too mean-spirited.
1: I don't mind, I I don't mind mean-spirited humor as long as the fact that it's mean-spirited is kind of the point. Yeah, like some of what Amando Iannucci does in Veep, or what "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" does, where it's just mm. like the point of it is shock, almost.
0: Yeah, I, I like I can I I enjoy the uh "Always Sunny in Philadelphia" bit where it's like my tools, I I need my tools. But one thing that we would be remiss I to the, not mention,
1: I suppose that I suppose the joke that the the joke is that the people who are saying these things are just awful. Yeah, and the the humor yeah. is how awful are these people right now?
0: Exactly. Yeah, we would be remiss not to mention uh, the opening scene, which I adore. The music, uh, all of that. Whenever we watch this movie, mm. Dad gets up and performs the little dance. The dun, 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 dun. Uh, It's it, it every has single time. Hurt him repeatedly doing it. Uh, and I did the same <laughs> dance uh, again this time watching it. I think I pulled something in my leg. <laughs> I went too hard.
1: Have you guys? Uh, have yeah. you guys seen the um the there was a promo for Gold Member because they got in like a whole um legal uh, challenge with MGM yeah. because of the the title parody, and so for a while they couldn't promote it as the title. They just were promoting it as the Austin Powers thing, and so one of the teaser trailers for Gold Member is Vern Troyer in his Austin Powers get up. Recreating that first scene, except all of the fans are also other little people. Yeah, have you guys seen that?
0: I, th- I believe so. so. Not recently,
1: but he's like got a little car as well that he mm. drives around in. It's it's very strange, but I, I agree with you. I do love that opening scene. Um, that it's sort of announcing to us what kind of movie this is. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. It's full of joy. Mm. It's showing you the world he's leaving behind. Wait, like, I've I've watched. You know, a lot of serious films recently. Yeah.
1: Like Lake Placid vs. Anaconda. Hey,
0: not, no, we're not... not that one, but you know what I that's mean. Barely it's barely like, a movie, though. It, in my own viewing, I've watched some serious stuff, and a lot of the spy stuff I've seen recently has been serious. Mm. Mm. Um, Johnny English notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's really good to see just a movie that's joyful. Yeah. Mm. Um, it goes into some of the... Little jokes like the Burt Baccarat Plays His Hits thing. We have that record. We've got that LP in our yeah. house.
1: That's that's a great call. And then how, um, is it in the second one, Burt Baccarat and Elvis Costello? Yeah. yeah. And like weirdly prompted this Burt Baccarat career renaissance when this movie came I know.
0: out. It's just like, it's the weirdest
1: pull. Right.
0: And it's just... And I mean,
1: that stuff... The
0: only reason why we own that LP, and we haven't even listened to it, (laughs) the only reason why we bought it from someone at a market... We were like, oh my god, that's Burnt Backpacker Place's hits. We have to
1: own that because of the joke. But Hmm. we were were talking about the the kind of improv style of the humour. And I think that you see that in a lot of the stuff that I personally can't quite vibe with. The sh- scene was apparently all yeah. improv between Seth Green and Mike Myers. And you get a lot of that kind of feel in other places too. But the stuff for me that really works is the stuff that seems scripted. Burt Baccarat had to be contacted to turn up on set. Oh, yeah. That's a scripted oh, yeah. joke. Um, but the, the big monologue that um, Dr. Evil gives also, that's got to be scripted because it's just too wordy and it's too uh, intricately written to be come up with on the day mm. or or you got the the tom arnold stuff in the in the bathroom cubicle all the stuff that really works for me seems to be the scripted stuff and the mm. improv sort of thing seems like, to one be the stuff my, that doesn't quite
0: yeah. track one of my favorite jokes is one uh dr evil says when he sees the fembots for the first time it's like i like to see girls of that caliber Calibre. then it like and nobody no responds everyone then he's like by caliber, of course, I mean ref- I of course refer to the size of the gun barrels, but also the good content of their character. <laughs> caliber, to Uh I love the character of Vanessa. I think she's a fantastic foil, and Elizabeth Hurley doesn't mm. greatly. Mm.
1: She, um, she's so important because, especially in this first film, where Austin Powers, we're getting introduced to him in, in the first time, and we talked about kind of. How Austin Powers, if done incorrectly, could be really an awful character. Yeah. It's so important that we have a character like Vanessa and played as well as it is by Elizabeth Hurley. To It's so important we have someone to match him. You can't have someone yeah. who's not up to his level bouncing off of him because otherwise... Uh, the, the, it just doesn't work. Yeah, the lascivious stuff starts to seem really creepy if the person that he's bouncing off of isn't as formidable as Myers is. And I think... I agree with you. I think that the relationship there is really is really strong. I think the fact that she sort of takes him in stride and pushes back against him... Yeah. I, I, I think I probably prefer the Heather Graham character in the second, just because I, I think that's so fun to have sort of the female Austin Powers.
0: And she's kind of, like, more more into that than him yeah like she's a little bit more lascivious than she pushes further yeah Um, Uh, the heather graham character does i
1: I do love the joke though that austin powers who i mean mike myers is is not an unattractive man but Mm. the, the way that he's done up in this film with the teeth and with the glasses like it's it's done to make him look very nerdy intentionally yeah And I do love the... It's done to make him look like a really nerdy Beatles fan, basically. Uh, But the the ongoing joke that Austin Powers' sexual... The the sexual attraction that he has, um, that women have for him, um, is... That he's inexplicably the most attractive man on the planet to the point that he s- short circuits all of the fembots through his animal charisma like, like
0: I love that scene so much I'm gonna use a d and d term uh he he's he like a char- he's like a character who threw all all the stats into charisma mm. nothing into anything else and he just gets a natural 20 there
1: do you put do you put points in charisma when you're playing those games?
0: Yeah. Really? Oh, I do. I usually play as bards, so Well, I'm using usually, usually more physical based Like wh- when
1: it's a video When you video games, when you video but... games you've got to because it opens up new oh, dialogue yeah. and story. Oh, but but yeah. in
0: no, but in course. like uh pen and paper, mm. like d and D, I I usually go for bard characters and they've got a lot of the same chaos energy that I do. So I need to have that charisma there to sort of back it like, up and such... make it Workable. Like, the great scene about. The great thing about the Fembod scene. The use of <coughs> Touch Myself by the device. Um, it's just like the sheer shamelessness of him dancing there in the Union Jack on the Pants.
1: Which, I. Am I wrong, Margaret or was. Margaret Thatcher Naked on a Cold Day! Margaret Thatcher
0: Naked on a Cold Day!
1: <laughs> am I wrong, or was. um When I think about it, why Touch Myself written for this movie? No. No. Because.
0: No, this, this is a song from the 80s.
1: Okay, i I'm just I'm trying to find because because there was there was specific songs that were music videos on the disc um, featuring Mike Myers as Austin Powers in them, and right, th- yeah. The reason I ask is just because, um, yeah, this was nominated for best song for "I Touch Myself."
0: Huh? Oh, it was released in nineteen ninety. Yeah. It wasn't uh, released yeah. for
1: um, this movie.
0: Let but let's it just integrates look well.
1: Original songs.
0: Yeah, I Touch Myself is a song written and recorded by the Australian rock band Divinals. The funny thing is, uh, our parents have a connection to the Divinals because the Divinals did a concert at Bogo Road Jail. Mm. It's not the most complicated connection. You between our parents probably, just for
1: clarity's too. sake, explain to the listeners that your parents oh. were not in Bogo No, no, Cale. of
0: course not, of course not. No, uh, our dad is so cool. ran tours Historical so cool. tours. So cool. After it was closed in the old section of the prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our parents aren't some kind of Bonnie and
1: Clyde. I was saying, you know, if we have any listeners who don't know, uh, uh, aren't personal friends of yours, that quote might have seemed a little bit odd.
0: Fair enough. <laughs> hey, there could have been gods too. Uh... Just, let's talk a little bit about the music in this, in this movie. The songs or the score? There's obviously songs that they brought in, but the Austin Powers theme? Iconic. Oh, yeah. It's just iconic. It's one of those ones that you will recognize. It's unmistakable for anything else. You put put it on at a party and people will do the dance, even if they've never seen the movie. They'll try to do the dance and hurt themselves like I did.
1: Here we go. Um, it was more in the the second two films that those um those songs were uh were written for the film. Yeah, Beyonce did work it out for Goldmember and
0: and also the song Goldmember. Yeah, which is a banger. I love that song. Too intense. It's, it's, very, intense. it's very threatening. course and they really did a
1: energy. and Britney Spears did a new version of Boys for it as well.
0: I love After that minute, gag. I love that, that gag. gag. Is fantastic. That entire opening sequence for Goldmember, I love it. Even though it's a little bit, how you doing, because Spacey's there.
1: <laughs> Beautiful Stranger was written by Madonna for the second film. Hmm. Um, and the Mel B cover of Word Up was done for Austin Powers 2. And
0: Hard Knock Life. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Lenny Kravitz. Did his cover of American Woman for Austin Powers as well. Yeah. I thought there was something in that first movie, but... Hmm.
0: No. Hmm.
1: Oh, well. Um, is there anything else particularly that you would like to touch upon? Or?
0: Okay, so, in this... At the start of the second movie, it's revealed that Vanessa is a fembot. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point mm-hmm. in this movie do you think she was replaced? Because she would have had to have been replaced at some point.
1: Well, Basil says in the second movie that they knew all along... Um, <laughs>
0: Well, all alone can mean any, yeah. you know, I don't know, sort of period of she time. To,
1: yeah, you're right that she has to have been replaced because she has a mother. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. So I'm thinking after she starts to head to the base of operations to get the rest of the soldiers, I think that's when they the get switch ever happened. Out, when they get knocked out by random task. That's what I think possible. is when the switch was made. Because, um, like you said, it would have had to happen. At some point. I I, I love the slow dipping mechanism joke. How that entire thing, it's like, oh, I get it. I have bad teeth. (laughs) My favorite joke about that whole bit was, like, you're just... It's like, you're not even going to watch them. No? No. I'm just going to assume everything went to plan. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I adore the line, you just... Don't Don't get it. Get it. Do you, Scott? Do you, Scott? You just don't. (laughs) Because it shows that he's... He takes this evil doctor supervillain thing, not necessarily seriously, but this has been his business for no on 30 years. Yeah, um, I think that's about it. Yeah.
1: Well, before we leave off, why don't we each go around and say... Who our MVP for this movie is and what our favorite scene or sequence was. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Elizabeth Hurley. Because as I mentioned earlier, I think that she is crucial in balancing this movie out. Yeah. I think that if she hadn't been effective, if that character hadn't been effective, then we run into some real problems with Some of the tone here, yeah. Um, and I think she gives as good as she gets. She's got a lot of charisma, she's got chemistry with Mike Myers. And uh, I was sad that she didn't come back in a large capacity, but we did get Heather Graham, so you know, yeah. And I suppose they're trying to continue that Bond girl thing. Mm. But I find that that would have been like the fun way, way, way too dark for Austin Powers, but like to do the. Um on Her Majesty's Secret Service ending the at, the, at the end where Doctor Evil just drives up at the end, shoots her and drives away.
0: <laughs> mm. Oh, with with the not having Felicity Shagwell in the third movie, I think and this is my pet theory, that Felicity is with Austin from three minutes in the part from five minutes ago. The, because there were two Austin the, powers the running chair. around by the end of Number two. Number mm-hmm. two. So she's probably out there with one of them, mm-hmm. and we're just following the other Austin in Goldmember.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good good idea. Which whichever one? So did, I suppose does that does that imply that that the Austin that we see in Goldmember is the the is which one is he? Is he the one that we watched in the first in the whole iteration? Oh my
0: god, is he a time remnant? It doesn't yeah. matter at this point. It doesn't matter but that's a way of explaining her being missing.
1: Anyways, favourite scene or sequence, I'm going with the whole of the therapy scene. I think that's a great idea to have this very over-the-top villain in, you know, family therapy in this very contained, normal sort of setting. There's
0: that fantastic shot of Dr. Evil sitting there and there's, like, a flower painted on a
1: wall behind him. The, 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 uh... The monologue is great. The way it's just the idea of having a guy like that in such a regular, everyday situation, banal kind of of environment, and it works really well. It's that's some of my favourite stuff, and it's some the Scott Doctor Evil stuff is some of my favourite stuff in the whole series. Like yeah. again, I love the Jerry Springer stuff in the second movie,
0: <laughs> which um, really heightens the family therapy thing.
1: See, that's a way to redo the gag, but in an yeah. interesting way.
0: Yeah. And I, I like the, the on the Jerry Springer thing. It the topic of that day is my father is evil and wants to take over the world. Yeah, and you've got like a KKK member, a Nazi.
1: Anyways, yeah. how about you, John? What was who was your oh, MVP?
0: Jesus, uh, probably Mike Myers. I mean, he plays two very fleshed out, fully formed characters in this, and that only grows from the first one into the second one and into the third one. And his delivery goes a long way. And the shades that he gives Austin go a long way. I agree with you on the Elizabeth Hurley thing, but I, I think the other important person who makes Austin less of that Connery is Mike Myers. Oh, because yeah. Because yeah. he plays him with enough charisma and enough cheekiness and that it doesn't become creepy, that it becomes that he's more charming, and when someone really doesn't want it, he will stop.
1: I was sort of banking on the, the assumption that one of you guys would have my, yeah. my eyes at the MVP. I just thought I'd go with something a bit different.
0: Yeah. Mm. And my favourite moment in one of my at least top 20 favourite films... <sighs> the whole thing. I have to say <laughs> the whole thing. If I have to really narrow it down... It's one... There's one sentence that I think sums it up. I know what it and is. And I think you know what it is.
2: But mom, since dad left, she's been like a father to
0: me. That's... <laughs> the thing with the henchmen is that joke has always stuck with me as one of those pinnacle bits of comedy that I always return to and I always find it so funny The because before this movie obviously people thought oh these henchmen have families but I love the idea of the henchmen also being fully fledged characters with families, histories, hopes and dreams but over the course of the film they just die some of them die very badly and I also love the bit about John Smith at the stag party how it's like John Smith won't be coming today. He was decapitated by and inter- mutated sea bass. <laughs> Just a dead delivery. Smitty, and I. Yeah, if I have to pick any specific moment from that, it's that the the whole nobody ever thinks about what it's like to be family of a henchman. If I have to pick out of the entire franchise, I think for me it's the part where Austin is standing near the fountain and it looks like he's pissing into the dude's mouth. <laughs> And the person who's watching it on the monitor is like, is he doing what I think he's doing?
1: I do. I have always thought that it would be like in in like a a first-person shooter game, like in a Call of Duty, if like every now and then just as pieces of ambient dialogue, you know how they have those ambient dialogue, like get him" or Mm. grenade or whatever. If just every once in a while when you shot an NPC or an enemy, someone would yell, no, Gary. He had a wife and kids. They, they,
0: do, <laughs> they do that, they in, do the that last in the of Last Us of Us too.
1: Do they?
0: Yeah, yeah. And apparently, it, it's distressing. And I, I do like that idea of, and it's the thing that Splinter Cell did so perfectly in Chaos Theory. There's a guy who you go up behind and you grab him and you're interrogating him and he's like, "I, I knew it. I knew ninjas existed."
1: Anyways, like, how about I told them. How about you, Harley?
0: Um god, I'd have to say Mike Myers. He just like John said, he makes it charming, not creepy. And the fact that it comes off as cheeky and not intensely lascivious um really goes a long way to you to endear you to him in a way that you would never be endeared uh, to a sort of it's I'm endeared to Austin Powers in a way, I'm never endeared to the Connery Bond.
1: Sure. No. Um, you are right that if you if you got the wrong actor for this part, I mean, I don't even know what a good what a good pull would be, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't. Jared imagine Leto anyone else as Austin Powers would be.
0: <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> uh but did you know Jim Carrey was actually slated to appear as Doctor Evil.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh. I'm I'm glad that he didn't didn't get the role just because I think that, um, should Mike Myers and Jim Carrey ever meet, the universe would surely be unable to handle it and would probably rip a hole through the fabric of reality.
0: Yeah, Robin Williams watching Dad from Heaven like, yes! It's like, if they were to meet, uh, the world's sides would split. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, Mike Myers as Dr. Evil as well. Iconic. Uh, it's a completely different energy, Possibly my favourite, Blofeld. <laughs> um, uh, right. I my like favorite... Charles
1: Grey. He's good.
0: He no, is. Right. Who's your favourite uh, M?
1: Judy Dench. Dench.
0: Dench. Fair enough. Easy. Just because
1: Judy Dench got a lot more of a personality. She existed oh, yeah. outside of the job. She's yeah. more
0: of a character. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Judy Dench favorite... could,
1: like... Judi Dench could just be like, so you. she had a way of giving her lines just to kind of like, she is at the end of her rope. She just cannot deal with this, you know, murdering, sexing lunatic that has to come yeah. into her office <laughs> think, every other month. I think
0: Basil Exposition is a fantastic play on that. Mm. Yeah. And I love the thing where he's introducing... Uh, number three, the mole but, in the third movie. But, just but, but the like, the,
1: like the bit at the the end of um, with the the bit that I love, that and she kind of sums up her character for me is like in Quantum of Solace, where um, James Bond is pursuing a lead and he gets the lead and he kills the lead and he calls M and he's like, "It was a dead end." And Judy Dench is like, oh "For God's sake, him. he killed him, didn't he?" <laughs> like, it's just like I can't even, I can't even.
0: I love the part where Strawberry Fields has just been murdered and covered with oil, and she just turns to him and says, "They always die around you, don't they?" Um, my favorite scene. Uh, I'll have two. One is a serious, more serious moment. The other is a f- pure comedy moment. The ther- the uh, family therapy scene. It's just brilliant. Um. The monologue is hilarious, endlessly quotable. Uh, And just like like you said, Lawson, seeing this absurd character put into a normal situation is just great. My second favorite moment for a more serious bit is perhaps uh, when Austin is reflecting on his past with um, Elizabeth Hayley's character's mother. Uh, And you do see that both nostalgia, but also sadness that he m- missed out. Yeah, because he, he says, "If there was any other cat who could have loved your mother as much as your father, then it was me." Yeah, and it—I don't know—it's a comedy character, but that gives him a bit of a. It makes yeah. him less caricature, more of a person. Yeah, Find. Um, and also the fact that he said no to Vanessa. When she was drunk, yeah, was it's something I keep going back to, and I'm just like, you know, it. You didn't even used to hear that in the '90s, really. That wasn't a common thought back then either. Well, I
1: I, I in, don't in a, know. In, I don't. I in, honestly don't know. I can't say. I don't think any of us can honestly say we'd have to ask someone well, who was a, around. In a lot of
0: the sex comedies that I've seen from the '90s,
1: sure, you know, sure. In comedies you know. sure, but I, I I'm not willing to say that that was necessarily an unheard of no no I concept. I, I,
0: yeah, you're right. But you know, as media reflecting sort of the beliefs of a time, uh, getting people drunk sure. to have sex with them was seen as humorous. Yeah. And not as Yeah, we were just a little predatory. too
1: young to be able to comment too heavily on that though.
0: Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Um and to see Austin Powers, uh, like you said, sort of like a very sex-forward character, actually say no when it mattered, you know, it's left a bit of an impact with me. Um, not that I wouldn't already know what the boundaries are already, but to see then somewhere, I didn't expect to see it. Always stuck. So, Lawson, why don't you tell us what we've got next week?
1: Well, next week, we will be going in the tonally the other direction. With a very good but very serious noir movie set in nineteen fifties Los Angeles, we will be talking about L.A. Confidential. Uh, and if you would like to watch along with us at home, if you are in Australia, then it is available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video. It is also available for rental or purchase on the Apple Store.
0: If you want to find us at our blogs, you can find Lawson at at the Candy Counter. The link to which is in the description. You can also find John and I at On the Bright Side, link in the description. You can also reach us through our Twitter, uh, link in the description. Uh, comment, rate, subscribe. We can't see our subscriber number, which, you know, seems absurd, but, you know, comments and ratings also help spread the show. Uh, recommend the show to your friends, uh, all of that jazz. Um, I have been Holly Lewis.
1: I've been Lawson Keeney,
0: and I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis, the funny one. Well, actually, I was going to say I'm Holly Danger Lewis. Lewis.
1: Yeah, my middle name is James. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> our middle name is Alan. That's our dad's name. Like with most things in this life, I have to share my middle name.